Listen to Oddities, late night movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddities where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, normal, or off kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times, they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classic swamp. I'm Zach. And I messed it up, Zach. My snap was all over the place. I have I have to also <laughs> say, the first line of Legally Blonde 1 was also in contention, where we get to hear Reese Witherspoon say, I love that restaurant. I heard Madonna went into labor there. <laughs> <laughs> and I would just like to, to kick off by talking about the restaurant. I will put in the spreadsheet that it is uh, canon that Madonna went into labor in our restaurant. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Oh, there was there was a whole lot of others that I had to to choose from, and I'm sure they are all going to come up at a certain point or another in this discussion, because this movie is riddled with good quotes. Um, and I, I guess also before I throw it over to you, Zach, uh, I, I know you're upset about all of this, but can't you just take a Percocet? <laughs> oh my god, Rob! Like honestly, like I don't even know where to begin with this. Like I, I know I've I use that a lot when it comes to like discussing films on cinemodies. But this is like one of those ones where it's just like it's it's a treasure trove of just delightful moments. And I don't even when I say that, I don't even know if I'm being ironic. I don't even know because like like you have two movies here, two two films, and they are so tonally and just I don't even know what you would call it. It's like night and day. Yes. Like it's the exact same movie. But one is done correctly, and I know this is not the first time I've made this analogy, but it's like the Nathan For You episode where he did Dumb Starbucks. Okay. But it's pretty much the exact same thing. We have Legally Blonde, then we have Dumb Legally Blonde, Red, White, and Blonde. (laughs) I think the best place to start, Zach, is that uh, the title Legally Blonde is a play on Legally Blind. How much yes. detail would you like me to give you? Do you understand this? And I know I don't I don't want to overwhelm you right now, but the subtitle of the second one, Red, White and Blonde is a play on Red, White and Blue, which of course are relating to the colors of the French flag. Yes. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. I'm glad you brought up that part about the French flag because I'm I, I wasn't sure about it. I was really kind of like I felt like I was walking on eggshells when it came to that, but Thank you for clearing that up. It might take us this entire conversation to get to the bottom of the legally blonde versus illegally blind. No, you know, I think this is one of the easier ones to get. Even though that I told a few people like this past week, uh, weekend and late last week where I was like, oh, I've got to watch the legally blonde movies. And they were like, oh, I, I, have, I haven't seen those in forever. And I was like, do you get it? Legally blind, legally blonde. Like I was making the same joke I'm making now. And legitimately at least three people were like, Oh, I've never thought about that before. And I went, how? How can you not think about that? <laughs> I think, okay, I, I, I don't even know where to begin with this discussion, like I said, because there's just so much going on right now. But I think this film, at least the first one, has permeated the culture so much that, like, the movie comes first. The, what would you even call it? Legal term? Come second? Sure, sure. That you're saying something like this is has like you just said went through cultural osmosis so deeply 
that it's almost Permeated, like yeah. nobody knows legally blind is even a term anymore, except I think people like you and Isaac who are very close to being legally blind. <laughs> indeed, Rob, indeed. So I, I think I know where I want to start because I, I, do, I could not remember if I had mentioned this in previous episodes because I have – we're doing the good thing that I like where we have a, a nice catalog of things I have to edit. So I don't remember exactly if I said this before, but I think it's really important that this movie, I think both of them, but the first one in particular, being a 2001 film, of course, because we're in the fourth year, I think I've known about this film my entire life. And, of course, that can't physically or, you know, universally be true because I was born before 2001. But here's the thing, and like I said, I don't know if I mentioned it before, I had never, ever seen this movie. This has been one of the biggest, like, blind spots of, you know, classic comedy that everybody you talk to, from, like, women I was hanging out with to, like, just dudes that are older than me, or I'm like, I gotta watch Legally Blonde for the podcast, and they're like, the movie's kind of good, and I'm like... Uh, that's what I've always heard, and now after I've seen them, I watch, we of course are talking about both the uh, the two Reese Witherspoon ones because I don't think she's in the direct-to-video ones, if I remember from what I read correctly. You are so right, Zach, in that these are two wildly different movies. The first one is pretty great. I kind of love the first Legally Blonde. The second one is so out there that it's almost like a- another case of. I don't know, convoluted masterpiece that we had in like Pootie Tang or I don't, you can't put Freddy Got Fring into that category because that's from a different universe. No. But Indeed. I'm so glad, I think this has become a big part of the fort year, that I finally have gotten to see these movies and I'm really interested to know because I know you've always had an affinity, you know, for these films and as you mentioned just a little bit earlier, I am so excited to know how these ended up on the uh, the list for the fort year. But that's my, my top-line takeaway, is that I had some problems with the first movie, some things that I think are nearly ruinous, and they are such Rob nitpicks that it's kind of crazy. But at the end of the day, I'm like, this movie might fucking rule. <laughs> I'm glad you said that. Okay, so my context. I think the first one, like, I, again, I really struggle with this. As I watched both of these... Um, the first Legally Blonde, I've seen at least a dozen plus times over okay. the last 20 years. The second one, I've maybe seen three times. Maybe. Sure. Um, I've not watched the film in any sort of meaningful way in the last 15 years. So, like, watching it for this recording was really, like, the first refresher I've had in any sort of, like, way that it really kind of, like, sank in. I could remember it. I want to say the first one might actually be a match. I, I, I mean, it's like objectively, not sarcastically, not ironically, not in a cinematical sort of way, pointing <laughs> yeah. a new version of that term. <laughs> I think the first one might be a masterpiece. Like it's genuinely like it, 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 the first one is able to somehow toggle so many different genres and it elevates every single one and transcends them at the same time. It's kind of unbelievable how in some of my notes, I just have written down like that scene was amazing. Like that was so good. That was so satisfying and things like that. It really is almost unbelievable that my big takeaway other than the thoughts I've already given was how did it take me this long to see this damn movie? <laughs> yeah, I a hundred percent. I agree. The first movie and we'll get, I'll get into my context in a moment, but yeah, I think the first one is it's everything a movie should aspire to be on a blockbuster level. Whether it be the story, the characters, the performances, 
I everything. I firing a definition of a film that's firing on all cylinders. Um, my context for this was I re- in the summer of two thousand one. I can vaguely remember my nephew talking about it, and I saw this in theaters in two thousand one. Okay, with my mother, and I remember enjoying it. Like I really don't remember that much from it. I remember him, like my, my nephew, talking about like the fact that like she's in like a Playboy bunny outfit for some part of it. I, I I have the VHS of it. I know last year I even talked about to, to Rob that like I watched my VHS copy of Legally Blonde. <laughs> In the last year, I actually upgraded it to a Blu-ray version because it came. It was only like ten dollars, and it came with both the first one and the second one. Sure. So I'm like, why not? Like the VHS t- at some point, I will not have access to a VCR, so I might as well get the Blu-ray of it. And even rewatching it for this recording, I'm like, man, this is just like <sighs> good movies are are not hard to come by charming movies are very rare sure a that's ch- a good word, char- word to use yeah and and this is the definition of a charming movie every character in this movie main character is likable on some level mm-hmm. every character like even though even like warner who's the definition of a smarmy character even he is charming on some level <laughs> selma blair luke wilson uh, Ali Larder, uh, Jennifer Coolidge, they're all fun and charming on some level. And and that's just incredible. Hollywood doesn't make charming movies anymore. They just don't. Everything now is ironic and sarcastic. Yes, yes. And, and, and that's the problem. This is And this is a perfect moment in like – that's the reason why we're doing the fourth year in that this is the sort of movie that could only come out before 9-11. Sure, sure. You're not going to get this again. And Legally Blonde 2 is a perfect example as to why you don't get this type of movie anymore. Yes. yeah. Oh, God. You're absolutely right that Legally Blonde 2 is almost an entire separate discussion. Like After actually seeing these movies, and if you hit me up, Zach, and you texted me or said, like, hey, I think we should actually do Legally Blonde 1 week and Legally Blonde 2 the second, I'd be like, I kind of see where you're coming from. They are so wildly different. I, I kind of I, – I don't know if I would say I love the second one. I love more the insanity of the second one, I guess I should say. Okay. I want it noted. Like as I was watching the second one, um, I, I, I remember that – okay. I'll go through this real quick. When the second one came out in 2003, I did not see it in theaters. I got it as a Christmas present in 2003, ironically, from my brother and my sister-in-law, the parents of my <laughs> – nephew okay and i remember him and i became weirdly obsessed with the movie mm-hmm. um like i have the soundtrack to legally blonde too i have the dvd and him and i just like like we kind of cherry picked our our favorite quote-unquote moments from the film the most pronounced being when l decides to like dial up the like clandestine group of Delta new sisters. <laughs> and we get like a literal call chain of like all the sisters calling different people. And we get the, I don't even know what you would call the individual. I don't know if it's supposed to be a transgender individual. I don't know if it's supposed to be a man in drag. I don't know what the gag is. It's just a very husky voiced individual going hey, cookie. It's Jane. <laughs> Sisters mobilized. ETA 0800 hours. Hi, Heather, it's Buffy. Hi, Kiki, this is Tiffany. Hi, Amber, it's Becky. Hi, Audrey, it's Melanie. Hi, Josh. 
Gus, it's Brina. Hey, Courtney, it's Veronica. Hi, Christy, it's Nick. Hi, Pinky, it's Nikki. Hi, Jill, it's JoJo. Hi, Allison, it's Cookie. And I'm just like, <laughs> what? And like, him and I, in 2003, thought this was the most hysterical thing in the world. And to this day, it's still pretty funny. It It is really funny in the sense of the joke that they're going for, which is another such a clearly like early 2000s type of joke. And of course the sequel was in 2003, but the, I found it so funny, not only from just the punchline, but the sheer insane number of girls on phones. They track through before getting to that last one. Like it is a, a moment. I'm sure I've referenced on this podcast before. There was a moment that I took hallucinogenics and I was like, I want to sit down and I want to listen to some music. And there was a song that played, uh, and Zach's not going to be surprised by this. I listened to a song by Animal Collective that there's a very rep- repetitive part in that song. And I literally, in my hallucinogenic induced state, thought it was going to last forever. Watching this movie sober completely made me feel the same way. I was like, are we going to get an infinite length of time? Like, the person who made, the people who made these movies are just continuing shooting women saying their name into a phone and then another name. It is so insane, I think, from a great, like, technical level, from a great comedic level, I'm just blown away by it. <laughs> It's 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 so like okay because I don't want to jump too far around with this because I feel like this this discussion has a very strong possibility of us pinballing. Sure, sure. But like okay, I I just want to sum up my thoughts real quick about both films before we get into just our our just weird like manic state of this, <laughs> like discussing all of this. Sure. Um, I, I like I said earlier, the first film I think is a genuine like like masterpiece when it comes to blockbuster cinema genuine like like not like again it's not citizen kane but it's it's for like a role i don't even know what genre you would call the first film like it's it's coming of age it's a romantic comedy fish out of water um, yeah but there's a lot going on too absolutely don't judge a book by its cover of course is one of the big themes but but i think i think that's why it works so well is that the first movie I don't really think, like, if, if somebody asked me now, is like, oh, you know, maybe they come to me and they say, I've never seen Legally Blonde. I wouldn't describe it as, like, the Wikipedia or IMD plot synopsis. I wouldn't go, you know, oh, sorority, uh, head, head of her sorority goes to law school to get re- revenge on her boyfriend, whatever you want to use. I know what I just said isn't the exact right term, but I would describe it as the things we just mentioned. Fish out of water. Don't judge a book by its cover. And, like, there's so many more great themes going on in this movie than... It almost transcends it, – it matches the level of the content. I was about to say transcends the content, but the, they almost go hand in hand like hot take oh, what a movie should do. <laughs> it does. And that's the thing. Like there's no – like this, this film just kind of like somehow like walks the line of multiple genres. And I think that's like – it's possibly its strongest suit because I cannot think of another film that does so much. Sure. As this sure. film does. Because like I said, and, and I think the ultimate – thing is that it's charming yeah and that you can probably narrow the amount of charming films in cinema 
to probably about 30. That is a very, very exclusive list. And the fact that this film gets on it is, is nothing short of a miracle. And like I said, I think we both agree that the first film is objectively a good movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like like I said, I do have some issues with it. I want to talk about those. But I am so on board with saying that this movie rules. I am probably going to watch Legally Blonde again in the near future just because of some other people I was telling about it. They wanted to see it as well. And I this is not an instance where I'm like, no, I just saw it. I, I don't need to see it again. I kind of do want to see it again, like almost immediately. <laughs> it is. Like, it's one of those movies that I've revisited countless times over the last 20 years. And every single time I watch it, it's just like even like the ending. I find that ending. And I think that's why this film resonates so well and why it's endured is that it's like that ending is just like it, it, leave, it gives you it's like a shot of endorphin. You talk about the ending at the graduation or from, with the yeah, truck? Okay, yeah, yeah. sure. Oh, you oh, mean no. when yeah, the gra- dad has a martini glass at the graduation ceremony? Wonderful. <laughs> and I'm get- it, perfect. I, but this is the thing that was like, this is like the magic of movie making. I know a lot on Cinematis who talked about like reshoots and like peeking behind the curtain and things like that. And the thing like I never really knew until like researching this movie is that like that whole like, I guess epilogue we'll call it. It was a reshoot. Yeah, like, I read that same like, thing. Apparently, Reese Witherspoon was like in it was like in Britain while that was happening. Like the Luke Wilson stuff, the Selma Blair thing, the Warner thing was all like like this kind of cobbled together because apparently test audiences didn't like the idea of the movie ending with her like walking out of the courtroom into like like a bleached out like yeah like yeah. like sky and that's and like, that's that- where this movie succeeds so well in the sense of what you just described and what you can read online about the original ending of this movie it is the quick cut happy ending like trial all worked out well she kisses luke wilson boom we're done and i don't think l woods does not need a happy ending her her whole existence is happy. We should see what else is going on and to want to see her to move up to bigger, better things, which is exactly what I think that graduation scene does and why it's so wonderful and almost, which I'm sure we'll get to, in contrast, how batshit insane her looking at the White House <laughs> at the end of the second movie is. <laughs> yeah. I guess I, I, we, I, it's bad as it is to say I want to just kind of just like get everything I can about the first film out of the way. Because the second <laughs> film, like, the first film is objectively a great film. The second one is the cinematic. Like, the second oh, one yeah, is, like, yeah. okay, this is insanity. Nobody, like, like Reese Witherspoon was a producer on the second one, and yep. nobody said no. Yeah. The second one is a perfect example of nobody understood what the word no means. Um, but getting back to that first one, like, even how the film, like, punctuates itself the final moment we get in that film like think about it the catalyst to the events of the film is warner rejecting l because she's too blonde Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. another that is the uh, catalyst for another potential quote for me at the start if i'm gonna be a senator when i'm 30 i need to stop dicking around (laughs) yes yes like that should be a bumper sticker um (laughs) you have you have that brilliant um but like you have that as the catalyst for all of this and and yes like that's the reason why l goes to law school but she learns through her time there that i i'm bettering myself because of this because it's objectively something good for me beyond trying to get with warner yes and he's not worth it 
Yes. And then the final moment of the film in that epilogue is that moment where you get of, of uh, Luke Wilson's character, and it's like, well, God, what's his name? I want to say Owen, but I'm just saying it because that's uh, his Emmett, brother's I name. I believe. Emmett, thank you. And it's like Emmett's going to propose. Like we keep going back and forth between like all this stuff where it's like, oh, Warner graduated without any offers, any sort of yep. honors, anything yep. like that. Selma Blair and her best friends, um, Jennifer Coolidge and the UPS man are expecting their first baby. They're going to name her <laughs> Al. Um, and then like you get to like cut Emmett, and it's like Emmett's going to like Emmett opened up his own practice, blah blah blah. And then you get and you cut back to like all these shots of just like Reese Witherspoon like smiling at like the, like the graduation crowd. And then it cuts back to Emmett, and it's like Emmett's going to propose to L. And then it's like 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 one, two, three tonight. And it's just oh, it's heart melting. And it's just like she got what she wanted. Like I guess the definition of like having your cake and eating it too, not just on like a cinematic level, but on the character level. And that's just so rare. Like it's it's cinematic bliss in that sort of way. Where like, like every single person has been in Elwood's shoes, whether it be on the oh god vocational level, romantic level, personal level. Like it's it's a character that literally anybody can relate to. Yeah. Absolutely. And, it's, and that's so rare. And I think that's that that's why the cathartic ending is just so profound and why this film still re- like this is one of those films that even fifty years from now, people will be talking about it. Oh, absolutely. Because yeah. it's not it's it's a it's funny, like of all the films we've talked about for the two thousand one four year, this is the film that maybe is the least dated. Sure. Like on sure. a thematic level. On a thematic level. Don't get me wrong, there's some things in this that are very much of the of the time period. Um, a lot of things that are of the time period, but thematically, it's timeless. I don't and know, I think... Zach. There's a line where she says, "I hired a Coppola to direct my admissions video." That might be timeless. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny you mentioned that because when I was saying that about being timeless, that's the first moment I thought of. <laughs> it's a wonderful line. I was dying. Okay, so I have. I have to say, we because I'm with you that the performances in this movie are great, and I think they make it. I think, if I'm being completely honest, without you know going back and actually scouring like a list of movies I've seen, I'm pretty sure the last movie with Reese Witherspoon I watched in her in was Freeway. Sweet Home Alabama. No, I don't think I've ever seen Sweet Home Alabama. <laughs> Freeway. If Zach remembers that movie, something we will inevitably have to cover when we finish up our Matthew Bright di- filmography because he directed our Indeed, good wow. old Ted Bundy movie, but. So I, I wasn't really expecting a lot from Reese Witherspoon because she's crazy in Freeway, but I know that there's some I, – if I remember correctly, there's some, like, backstory stuff where it's she – Reese Witherspoon wants that, like, stricken from the, faith of the face of the earth like a George Lucas holiday special scenario. And I know her more as, like, she's gone to TV and, and what, Big Little Lies and all small fires. I don't know. She's done TV shows I've never seen. So I – I didn't really know her at anything other than Freeway or Election. And I haven't seen Election in at least, like, I don't know, 18 years or something. And so I wasn't really thinking Reese Witherspoon was going to be the uh, huge standout of this movie. I thought it was going to be like, oh, this is the movie everyone knows her for. As we go through the, the opening credits, you know, we get Reese Witherspoon on there. And then we go through some more. 
and like I said before, never have seen this movie. I'm like, oh, Victor Garber's in this. Like, hot off, not hot off of, but, you know, after Titanic, we get to see Victor Garber again. Ali Larder. And I'm like, I, I think I mentioned in a previous episode in the Fort Year, I only remember Ali Larder from Heroes. And then we get to the, the thing that I never expected I'd ever see in my life. It's shared billing of Oz Perkins and Linda Cardellini. And I one went, oh, I love Linda Cardellini, because I really do love Linda Cardellini. But Oz, I was like, Oz Perkins is in this movie? And if you look up his credits now, he's, he goes more oftenly by Osgood Perkins. But I, I was shocked to see this because I was like, oh, my God, Oz Perkins has done very little acting, I think, in any notable roles. I was so interested from that moment to see how big of a role he was going to have in this movie, and he is one of my favorite parts as playing someone called David Kidney. But he's the dude, which is why I'm so excited to talk about this. He has directed what we now know as the last episode ever of Jordan Peele's Twilight Zone, which is the only good episode. And, really? And I think I've told you this before where I think when I was when I watched that second season, season 2 episode 10, you might also like. I was like, this is good, but I I think I said to you Zach it was something like I think it might only think it's good because it's better than absolute garbage, which is the other 19 episodes <laughs> of that show, like offensively mm-hmm. painful garbage to sit through. I've kind of come around to the fact that I think Osgood Perkins has directed the only good episode of The Twilight Zone in probably the last 40 years. So I was ecstatic to see Oz Perkins. And like I said, Linda Cardellini, because I love me Linda Cardellini, even though I haven't seen her more recent stuff. I think the last thing can I we, saw her in was fucking... We, she's Hawkeye's wife. <laughs> and she's, uh, oh God, Velma. Uh, Velma? Yeah, Velma but that's... Scooby-Doo? Yes, yeah. Vel, yeah, she's Velma. That's the very next year, Rob. That's the next year. Which is crazy to me. But I was so on board from that moment of the title cards that I was like, what? Are, what is this movie going to be? And, you know, we go through that whole opening scene, the, the breakup with Warner, like you mentioned. We go through this sorority house tracking shot where the bathroom has so much steam in it, it's unreasonable. That really stood out to me. And then, really, everything comes together. When I, when I lose my mind, when Reese Witherspoon is talking to the old lady at the salon, oh. and she pulls out that mag, I think it's a magazine, and it has, you know, Warner next to some woman we have never seen before in the movie and we never see again, as far as I know, because it's not Selma Blair. And, oh, it's Warner's, it's Warner's brother. Sorry, I'm confusing that. Warner's brother is the one who's marrying the Vanderbilt, as he explains. Um, he says something to Reese Witherspoon, like, I don't need a Marilyn, I need a Jackie, or something like that. And Reese Witherspoon goes, that's it. This is the kind of girl I need to be if I want Warner to marry me. And the old lady, who has nothing to do with anything that's going on, says, what? Practically deformed? Like, shrilly screams that out. And I legitimately laughed out loud in my apartment and went, you've hooked me, movie. Oh, my God. Do you know who this is? No. That's Warner's older brother. Who? Third-year Yale Law student Putnam Bowes Huntington III and his fiancée, Lane Walker Vanderbilt. First-year Yale Law. (gasps) This is the type of girl that Warner wants to marry. This is what I need to become to be serious. What? 
practically deformed? No. Like, this is the best button to, like, the first 10 to 15 pages of a screenplay that I've seen in a long time. And it's followed up a little later by an actually great edit of comedy from Reese Witherspoon in her bikini in the video essay cut to a bunch of old white men on the admissions committee. And I'm like, that is perfect timing. So this movie sold me from very early on, and I don't think it ever lost me until two things that I started to notice, which we can talk about now, or if you want to talk about, because I will do it for an hour, Zach, the old lady saying that that girl in the magazine is practically deformed. It is wonderfully funny. (laughs) It's one of those jokes that, like, as a kid, like, I never picked up upon, but now that, like, I'm an adult, I'm just like... Man, this is just like, like where, like, where did this come from? It's scathing. It's, just... it's so scathing at a point in the movie that has not done anything to establish how scathing this movie can actually be. But it's the point. Like I said, it's near that, that first few pages of the screenplay where they need to set up, well, yeah, people are going to be mean to each other in this movie. And that might be the best way to throw us over the cliff into that idea. But, like, I don't even know if that's the case because it's so quick and fast. I don't even think of the majority of, like, people, like, like opening weekend would even gotten that. Like, like that's the thing. Like, it's so biting and, like, of the moment. You really have to be paying attention to get that oh, moment. Sh- sure, like, sure. Like, but I feel a lot of this movie does rely on that biting and of the moment type of, type of humor. With think, the legal jargon think, and stuff. I think that – I think a lot of the jokes in this movie come from, like – second and third viewings i think there's a lot of stuff like oh you didn't catch at the first time you watched it oh you're not wrong there and i think that's exactly why i'm getting at why i want to see this movie again not not in the near future anytime really because this was one of those movies where i was laughing so much i probably missed the next two or three jokes which is like my number one criteria for a comedy and i and i'm so i'm with you it's it's funny but i feel that since i caught that one it really threw me into that mindset of like, oh, when this gets going, when she's at law school, like people are going to hate her at the start. You know, it, it, at least it trained me. I don't I feel like it's a good example of they were actually starting to train me how to watch the movie because everything else up to that point is lovey dovey, glitter, pink, one bad breakup, take a Percocet, don't this line where someone says she took eight grilled cheese sandwiches and shoved them directly in her mouth. And that's all very goofy, and then this makes it a little more grounded, if you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that part's weird. Like even like like the was it like the Korean woman saying like no shit? Like even that was like <laughs> when they start like, speaking it, it, in Korean. Oh my god, that's right. <laughs> yep, that that happens in this movie. Um, yeah, like that. Like, like even like as a kid watching that, I never got that they were referring to her. Okay. Yeah, but like I said, it's one of those things, like I said, you pick it up, you pick up on it as you're rewatching it. Sure, sure, it is, it is so good. I like I said, I laughed out loud. I'm not this. That's not all the only point. I laughed out loud a lot during this movie. Um, when we get to the gay pool boy in the last scene, oh my god, was I losing it? <laughs> <laughs> but even that, again, that whole sequence where Emmett exposes him. Even that is charming and clever because it's just so quick and rapid fire. Oh yeah, ab- absolutely. I think that's that's you know another thing I love is that that fast talking, you know, g- giving us jokes, giving us exposition, giving us getting us through the story. Um, but that 
just I feel like there's a one-two punch of the, um, you know, it might be the scene directly prior, but when Allie Larder's like, you know what Delta knew would never sleep with a man who wears a thong? Never! And then it cuts to Emmett doing the whole rapid-fire question and getting to, and what's your boyfriend's name? Chuck. Whoa, whoa, hold on, no, no, no. Chuck is just a friend. Chuck stands up from the the gallery in the courtroom and goes, you bitch, and storms out. And I'm like, why would Chuck even be there? (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever take Mrs. Wyndham on a date? Yes. Where? A restaurant in Concord where no one could recognize us. And how long have you been sleeping with Mrs. Wyndham? Three months. And your boyfriend's name is? Chuck. Right. Pardon, pardon me, pardon me. Yes, I, Mr. Salvatore. I, I was, uh, I was con- confused. You oh. see, I thought you said friend. Chuck is just a friend. Oh, okay. You bitch! <laughs> Chuck, wait! Silence in my court. Sit down, Mr. Salvatore. But that's the thing, though. Like, in any other movie, I feel like you and I would be criticizing it for that. In this movie, it adds to just how likable it is. Yeah, and, and you're, you're, that point is, I totally agree with you that how quickly... They get me on Reese Witherspoon's side and how they keep me on her side. And you're right, even not about just our main character, but everybody in this movie, there is a sense of like, oh, I want to see them su- succeed to some extent, you know? Like, even with our, our bad guys, I guess, with the, when I say bad guys, I mean Warner and Selma Blair, the true bad guy kind of is Victor Garber because he's skeezy at the end of the movie. But I, like, throughout the whole movie, I'm like, I want Selma Blair to come around and realize that this girl is going to be your best friend. I want Warner to get his comeuppance, but still be like, damn, I missed out on a good thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that's, and you get all of that and then some. Yes. Because even, like, even when we get the part with, like, Warner, like, Warner rejects her at the restaurant. And then, like, as she's, like, like crying, walking home, <laughs> and he's, like, talking, he's like, Pooh Bear, get in the car. And she's like, No. And he's like, you're gonna ruin your shoes. <laughs> and she's like, and she and she has like that, like she has like like a look, what, like a moment, and she's like, oh, yeah, okay. Very begrudgingly gets, the gets in there, and she's like, yeah, you're right, and it's just like, yeah. oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> exactly, which shows that like even though he's meant to be like, we're, we're rooting against him, we're not supposed to hate him. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. He's just like he's not—he's not malevolent. He's just a dumb guy. Yeah, yeah. I, and th- that first scene with him in the restaurant does so well to set up the fact that he is, like you said, he's not malevolent. He's—I don't even know if I want to say dumb. Dumb is a part of it, but it's more that it's like he's clearly the the version of the guy or the person that is impressed down upon the expectations of his family and his like his. I don't know, heritage, I guess, because it's like, everybody's always been a senator, so I gotta be a senator, and that's probably gonna lead you to make bad decisions in your life when you have that much force on your life from, you know, it makes me think of the Across the Universe scene, where it's like, why do you always want me to do things, Dad? I just want to smoke weed and call it a life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, you know, I was hoping to borrow your car, Dad. It's got AC and stereo. Damn it, Max! Be serious for once! What do you actually intend to do with your life? Why is it always about what will you do? What will you do? What will he do? Oh my God, what will he do? Do, 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 do. Why isn't the issue here who I am? Because, Maxwell, what you do defines who you are. No, Uncle Teddy, who you are defines what you do. 
I don't remember that movie anymore, Rob, so uh, I can't relate. Real quick, <laughs> just went to a yard sale the other day, got the two-disc special edition DVD of Across the Universe for $2. Oh, God, <laughs> damn it. God damn it, Rob. Why are you buying DVDs? They're glorified coasters. Because I found it at a yard sale, and I had a $2 bill to spend. It seemed perfect. <laughs> I could have really also bought four uh, – yes, I also could have bought four Will Smith movies for $2. <laughs> I went with Rob, the movie really, I know I like. <laughs> Rob, Rob, did you really use a two dollar bill to buy Across the Universe? Yeah, you don't do that. <laughs> that, that, that that that's amazing. That that you know what I I live, oh, wow. I know Zach. We've said things along these lines before. I live moments you may not like, but you have to respect. <laughs> damn straight, damn straight. <laughs> Buying Across the Universe for two dollars at a yard sale with a two dollar bill, like respect. Um that's the thing about this movie though is that like it's it's the characters like i think like in all honesty it's like anything in life that like anything that's truly good at what it does makes it look easy yes yes but that's like and again like i don't want like i said like, i want to give the first film it's due because clearly this is the 2001 four year and we should be discussing <laughs> sure. the first film but that second film is the cinemati. Oh, oh, absolutely. The first one, oh, yeah. the first film is objectively good. The second film is the inexplicable just piece of, I don't know what. Near, I would say almost near fever dream. Um, upon watching, because I've only seen these movies both once, of course, for this recording, the, the real, when the realization started to set into me that the setup event, the kicking off of the story in the second one was... Reese Witherspoon trying to find her mother, her dog's mother. I was kind of like, "Are we really doing this? <laughs> like, what? This is not what this first movie sh- should have been anything about." <laughs> it's it's I, the best way to describe Legally Blonde two, Red, White, and Blonde is the bizarro version of the first film. Absolutely, it, it's as if the first film was redone in a different universe, and yet. Everything they did right about the first film, they chose poorly or the opposite. Absolutely. To to directly compare these two movies, I think the issue is that the first one fundamentally gives the character of Elle Woods something she can handle. And yes, of course, if you want to be a stickler and go on Wikipedia and read the actual things that people have wrote about how she was a first-year law student, even with the precedent they cited, she couldn't have represented Allie Larder at the end. Ignore that, because it's a movie, but they give her something that she can fundamentally work at and figure out and solve. The second movie to jump immediately to banning all animal testing of cosmetics in the United States, ending with the button of I'm going to be president, is way too far of a jump, I think. And that was my biggest issue between the two, where the first one seemed reasonable and grounded, and the second one has her changing the world or at least the nation i think you described it best when it comes to describing the second film as a fever dream because that's honestly what it is it's just like you have all these different elements nothing makes sense it exists in almost i would say a different reality okay forget from the first film but from like a different reality that we all live in sure like i would like i whereas the first one is able to transcend multiple genres it effectively operates on every single level. The second one is, I would say, almost like a fantasy film. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, one, the example that sticks out to me, which I mentioned, is the, the impetus of the story is her going to a private detective and saying, I need you to find my dog's real mother and explaining it to him like he does not understand that she, a human being, is not the dog's real mother. And then it goes on into things like she's giving the dog slideshow presentation to to like her associates at the law firm she works at. And we immediately get the response of, did you confuse the law with the right thing? And it's so out of, it's coming at you from every direction in ways it can be over the top, but not in a good way, I think, making it that fever dream type of thing. And then, of course, when that first act kind of ends and she goes off to Washington, we legitimately get Reese Witherspoon say the line, I taught Bruiser how to shop online. I think I can handle Congress. And that's the point where I went, okay, all bets are off. That's the moment, just like in Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, when they do the Matrix moves and break real physics, I go, oh, now I know what movie we're in. Because Bruiser's her dog, if we didn't mention it. She taught her dog how to shop online, so she thinks she can handle Congress. And guess what? She does handle Congress, which is batshit insane. (laughs) But, like, this is the thing, though. That's the second movie is the dumb version of the first movie it's as if every right correct decision they made in the first one they made the wrong decision of in the second yes, one yes i don't i think i'm definitely agreeing with you but i think what i'm saying is in the sense that they took everything to the extreme in the second one to make it dumb when when i say dumb i don't mean bad i mean crazy i mean insane i mean makes me put my hands on my hair and go, what am I watching? Where in the first one, they're legitimately great scenes that I'm charmed by, and I go, oh yeah, of course this would happen. Of course, in the first movie, it just so happens that she knows the woman on trial because of exercise tapes, and they were in the same sorority. It's a screenplay. I know that has to happen. In the second movie, though, the the senator-congressman really stingy old lady hates her, and then it's just like, well, when the same thing happens and reveals she's in the same sorority as Reese Witherspoon, I like throw my hands down in disgust and go, well, of course. I, I think it's yeah. too extreme and not set up enough where in the first movie it's like, well, duh, of course she's the only stingy lawyer. She's not old or stingy, Reese Witherspoon, in this movie, but she's the only one in that room who would have any knowledge of this famous person that they're defending. Because I think it gets to that thing where it's like, you can do as much book research as you want, but those street smarts help out sometimes. And I know I'm confounding those two a little bit, where street smarts are occurring in a law firm, law firm office room, but I think you get what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, no, I get, I, I get what you mean. But, like, that's the thing, though, is that, like, uh, there'd be a fantastic, like, YouTube video to be made juxtaposing these two films. And, like, whereas you have moments and, like, how, like, in the first film, she's able to relate to people through, like, just, like, oh, God. Like, Jennifer Coolidge's character, who we've really kind of not talked about at all. Like, in the first film, she connects with her well, because they both have, that's like... next week, they Zach, both... I mean. <laughs> yes, that's in next week's episode. Um, but, like, they both have that thing of, like, the dog... Their dogs and their surrogate children. Yep, yep. And then in the second one, you have her connect to another character... Because the script that decides that, like, oh, a congresswoman went to the same, like, sorority. Yeah. And they have yeah. this weird sort of this, like, dance move thing where it's like, Delta, Delta, you! 
it, 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 it's like, one of I, the worst things I've ever seen, to be honest. It is. I, I, as I was watching it, I was genuinely embarrassed for everybody involved. Y- yes. And I think, yes. <laughs> and I think like one thing I really want to point out, and I know this is probably like I should have made this point earlier on, is that like if you look at Reese Witherspoon's filmography, like she really kind of just like came on like like she she's been around forever, like throughout the nineties. But, like, she really became, like, a presence in Hollywood in 96 with the one-two punch of Freeway, which to this day I think is a film that doesn't get it to do. And then you also have Fear with Marky Mark. Mm-hmm. And I, that, I remember seeing that movie back in the early 2000s and just being, like, there's the part where like, he puts, like, his hand under her skirt, like, on the, like, on the roller coaster. And I'm being, like, it's, like, an eight-year-old being, like, Mom, I'm scared. Come pick me up. And I'm just like, what is going on? Like, I don't understand what's happening. Like, what what is he doing? And mother's like, don't think about it. And I'm I like, need an adult. okay, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then like you have like 1999, where you have cruel intentions in election. Yep. And she's very much she becomes the good girl. Like she's Hollywood's ultimate personification of the good girl. Yeah, I so to this day another blind spot of mine is Cruel Intentions, uh, the movie that I keep mistaking with Basic Instinct and just keep watching Basic Instinct because it's a Verhoeven movie. The the thing I think is interesting about Election is that she's technically yes the good girl, but with a dark side. I don't know if how, I don't know when the last time you saw Election was, but like I said, it was got to be at least fifteen to eighteen years ago for me. But I thought that was the point. Like I expected her to be reserved yet. I don't want to say evil, cynical. Yeah, cynical, probably jaded, jaded, um, sure, cynical, sure. Jaded. But very yeah, much not... a, a um, I don't know, sh- shrew. I kind of want to say I don't want to say yeah, prude because yeah. there's something sexual about election. I think yeah, shrew yeah. might be the better word. Yeah, election. Election's the more underground film relative to Cruel Intentions at that time. Cruel Intentions, she is very much the good girl in that okay, film that Ryan okay. Philippe is trying to corrupt. And he, and, and through her actions, she actually, what's the word? Uh, oh God, makes make uh, what's the word? What be, like, like makes him the good guy, um, cleanses him of his sins, so to speak. Okay. Um, and then like by that time, she, she she's not a star, but like she's she's a solid presence in Hollywood. She's an American Psycho as Patrick Bateman's like soon to be yeah. like wife. She's in Little Nicky like in a bit role. 2001 is like okay like we're giving her her own film like she is now the star and guess what the film clicks mm-hmm. and that's where like you like the very next year you get sweet home alabama or once again it's it's the tom cruise vanilla sky thing of face on the poster that's all you need yeah and isn't, guess what? if i remember correctly because i saw marketing out the ass back in the day for sweet home alabama isn't just her next to a suitcase Yes, it's her I, it's next to It's not even her next to dog. another person. It's just a suitcase. Yep. It's it's the Vanilla Sky thing of just it's it's the actor on a piece yeah, of paper. Yeah, and absolutely. guess what? It it does it does the vast majority of the lifting, and it's another successful film. Um, then you have Legally Blonde two, which is pretty much her only major film for two thousand three. Mm-hmm. Two thousand four, she's in a film called Vanity Fair, uh, which is more of a period piece that kind of goes nowhere. After, and then, then guess what? The very next year, she does Walk the Line, where she wins an Oscar. Yes, yes, of course. And that's where her, and that's when her career becomes a little more tumultuous because she gets divorced that right after that. And then she from, starts, she starts uh, from we should say Ryan Phillippe, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. from Ryan Phillippe, yep. oddly enough. <laughs> um, and then like she, her next major films are Four Christmases, Monsters vs. Aliens, and How Do You Do. 
how do you do being like the last like major film from James L. Brooks, which was a humongous, humongous oh, bomb? How do, how do you know? Yeah, how do you know? Okay, yep. I was about to say, how do you do? I was like, what the hell is that? <laughs> Excuse me, Rob. Excuse me. How, okay, how, um, how do you know? Yeah, yeah, one of the but, most but how do you know least financially yeah. successful films in the history of the universe. <laughs> yes, and pretty much was like a definitive end to the idea of just putting celebrities' faces on a poster and expecting it to work. Oh, like pretty course. much like that. That was the death knell in the like celebrities just – in name value only can carry a film over the finish line. So I have to imagine that it was uh, after, from what you said, but shes I know she's in Water for Elephants. That is the very next year. And that, oh, was, and that okay. was another thing where, like, they like they paired her up with, like, Robert Pattinson, yep. like, right in the midst of, like, Twilight fame. And that was a film where it was, like, it made money, but, like, it, it wasn't, like, a huge success. Like it, like, it made money, but, like, it wasn't the level that they wanted to be. Of course. I mean, well, I, I also don't think she was paired up with Robert Pattinson. She was paired up with rampant evidence of elephant abuse in that film. <laughs> sure. Fair enough. Do you know, because um, I've, I've, I have to do a quick aside. Do you know the, the director of Water for Elements, what his first movie ever was? I do not, Rob. Constantine with Keanu Reeves. Really? Yes, and I know that because Ben and I did a deep dive into Constantine on the Patreon, and I had to talk about how ridiculously insane that Francis Lawrence directs Constantine and then I Am Legend, which makes sense as a filmography at that point, and then Water for Elephants and then three Hunger Games movies. (laughs) He also directed the Aerosmith music video of I Don't Want to Miss a Thing. Ooh, okay, okay. I don't want to miss a thing. <laughs> Rob, can, Rob, can we please have a – he also directed Nelly Furtado's I'm Like a Bird. Oh, okay, okay. The Backstreet wow. Boys' video of The Call. I don't think I've thought of Nelly Furtado in at least 12 years since you just said it to me. Britney Spears' I'm a Slave for You, which came out in <laughs> 2001. <laughs> Okay, that's next week. Jennifer Coolidge is the week after that. <laughs> he also directed the Will Smith music video for the song of Men in Black 2, Black Suits Coming, Parenthetical Nod Your Head. <laughs> okay, I, he I have to admit I don't skater, remember that one. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Are you about to say Skater Girl? Skater Boy? He, he, he directed the Skater Boy music skater video. Skater Person? Skater Individual. <laughs> skater Individual. <laughs> he also did Michelle Branch's Goodbye to You, JT's Cry Me a River, Jenny from the Block featuring Ben Affleck. Oh, oh, that's the next month now. <laughs> Can we please do a Francis Lawrence series, Rob? I think Can we, we have to because I really like Constantine movie and I really hate I Am Legend and I would no, 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 rather no, no. do Rob, those Rob, two and Rob, a bunch Rob, of music Rob, videos Rob. than – Rob, the rest of Rob, Rob. We're not even going to talk about the filmography. We are solely doing Justin Timberlake's Rock Your Body, <laughs> the Black Eyed Peas' Let's Get It Started, Gwen Stefani's What Are You Waiting For, Britney's My Prerogative, oh, Rob, Pump It by the Black Eyed Peas. Oh, he did Pump the, It? Pump It changed my world when I was a kid when I saw that. <laughs> <laughs>
he did he did the Pussycat Dolls Buttons music video featuring Snoop D O Double G. Okay, okay. He did Britney Spears' Circus. He did Lady Gaga's ba- Bad Romance. Oh man. Br- Beyonce's Run the World, Parenthetical Girls. What a you know, I was about to say what a legend, but I shouldn't say that. I say he is legend. <laughs> he directed Red Sparrow starting Jennifer Lawrence. What? Yeah, I never saw that Rob, movie. <laughs> Rob, can we please do the Francis Lawrence series? I, uh, you don't need to convince me any more than you already have, Zach. I mean, I think I came in hotter on this than you, and now we're just in the same boat. <laughs> we are. He actually did a Dior commercial for <laughs> featuring Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> we are okay folks we are doing the francis lawrence fort year for 2022 we are going to spend seven months talking about the works of francis lawrence <laughs> no relation no relation to jennifer lawrence oh man that's good that's good i like that this all came out of water for elephants <laughs> perfect um but yeah going back to uh to what's her name reese witherspoon um the problem is that reese witherspoon started to gain a lot of pro- like producer power in hollywood in this time and it's this thing that we've talked about a lot. Nobody told her no. Yeah. Well, so, well, one person eventually did very directly tell her no, and that was David Fincher. Because she was supposed to play the titular Gone Girl in Gone Girl, and David Fincher said, no, you're too old. <laughs> <laughs> I never knew that, but that's Reese great. Witherspoon, I'm pretty sure if I remember from my... Something, of course, we didn't get to talk about in our David, my David Fincher filmography retrospective because Ben and Zach could not be, could not handle 30 minutes of that. Reese Witherspoon's the one who gets the book rights to Gone Girl, wants to star in it, wants to produce it, and eventually they work on the script, David Fincher, her, and the author. And David Fincher goes, nah, you're, you're too old. You can still produce, though. And... That movie has a slew of other nightmarish reasons of Ben Affleck not wearing a New York Yankees hat, shutting down production for nearly a month or something like that. But that's how the whole movie started, is Reese Witherspoon. (laughs) What's really weird is that Rosamund Pike is only like three years younger than Reese Witherspoon. Well, but Rosamund Pike looks very dollish, which I don't think Reese Witherspoon does anymore today. I think Reese Witherspoon also comes with a lot of baggage. Because of movies like Legally Blonde, where she's the good girl. Like, what was that movie? Okay, like this is one of those movies. Like, I really, really need to revisit. There's a movie that came out in the last couple of years with Reese Witherspoon, where like she's living with a bunch of like guys like in their early twenties, and she like falls in love with them. And it's like Reese Witherspoon. You're like 40 years old. This is weird. Like, this is just kind of like not that it's bad, but it's just odd. And it's like, like why? Why why is this a thing? Talking about the. Oh God, what is that called? I know what I know what you're talking about. I'd, I I, I would have to look. Is it Home Again? Maybe. Oh, I remember. I remember seeing the like, the previews for that and just being like, like, like this is, okay, this is the, okay, yeah, it's Home Again. This is it because this is the Nancy Myers got yeah. her daughter to direct a movie. Yes, this is why I know. Life for yeah. a single mom in Los Angeles takes an unexpected turn when she allows three young guys to move in with her. And that's the thing. Like she's like divorced. Like she has like a kid, and like like three guys like like twenty years like younger than her, like come in. They're like, oh, we love you. And it's like this is this is this is just like weird. This is like, and again, like if you look at like the producing credits, like oh, she produced like she had like her fingers in this, and it's okay. like oh, and it's like, and, and that's what happened. Reese Witherspoon became a producer, and like, and that's part of the reason why like like Legally Blonde three has never gotten off the ground. 
is that she just has too much involvement in it. And like she's just like she's just like instead of like like finding someone talented and just being like, Okay, I'm putting my like I'm putting my faith and trust in you. Like, please do right by this. She's just micro like her it's my it's either her or her people mm-hmm. are just like micromanaging this just like from never existing. Okay, okay. Yeah, I've never seen Home Again, uh, but from what Neither I can I. see at, from it right now, Michael Sheen is in it, so I will tap out. You let me know what you think of it, is, of it Zach. <laughs> at some point, Michael Sheen says, I want to C-word punt you. <laughs> no, Michael Sheen, no, no, that's Michael Shannon, excuse me. I was about to say, I was about to say, am I all in on Michael Sheen again? <laughs> Fair enough. Rob, can we please just insert that one moment from the Michael Shannon sorority letter v- video? Oh, God. I want I to insert it three the whole thing three times. It's amazing. Okay. <laughs> it te- technically, it is tangentially related because we are talking about sororities. Yes. This, so yes. just saying. Yes. For example, being stupid shits and saying stuff like, yeah, what's kickball? Well, it's time someone told you, no one fucking likes that! I will fucking cunt punt the next person I hear doing something like that. And I don't give a fuck if you SOR me. I will fucking assault you. That's one of the things that every time we bring up on this podcast or I bring up with someone else, I have the moment that I think to myself, how do I not have that entire script memorized? I I need to be able to quote that through and through. Like, I want to, you know... Like, start in my 30s, become an actor. I want to do that for my audition for something. <laughs> yes. Wholeheartedly agree. Oh, yes. I like that, Zach. Your answer is just yes. <laughs> <laughs> and very, very enthusiastic yes. Um, yes. So, yeah, this was our Reese Witherspoon tangent. I think to tie it off is from what you've been going through, what I've said earlier she goes into TV shows where she has lead roles and production credits on it. You know, like the HBO, I know Big Little Lies is one of them. Uh, all, oh, I can't remember the name of the other one, but I think that's where she stands now. Yeah, she's more of like, like that's the weird thing. Like, I think she's she's more of a producer now than anything else. Yeah, yeah. And I got nothing against that. Like I'm saying, good for her. She If she can roll in the dough, I mean, she had to have David Fincher yell at her, I'm sure, because David Fincher only yells, you're too old. I'm sorry about that. But other than that, if you have really big HBO shows, you can't be doing that bad. Financially, I mean. No. no she gets it. Like, no, like, like, Reese Witherspoon, you can't, like, it's undeniable that Reese Witherspoon is successful. Um, I just think that, like, when it comes to maybe misunderstanding as to why people found you so endearing, like, at the beginning of your career. Sure, sure. Um, I, I think there might be a misunderstanding or she's trying to re maybe there is maybe she does understand but maybe she's trying to rebrand herself in a way that like mass audiences don't want to accept her that's fair that's fair and i think that you know maybe the best exemplification of her coming off as likable and us as the audience being on her side in the first legally blonde i think is that first classroom scene where she's wearing this ridiculous outfit she pops up with a dog she doesn't have a laptop she has a heart notebook and the teacher grills her and she kind of gets put in her place for one of the first times of not just being like what we assume loved by you know all her sorority sisters and all all these people on campus and things like that because she's been an event planner i think they say at a certain point like fashion and event planning is her major or something like that and but, but that entire first classroom scene is legitimately amazing 
where she she is not in the right in terms of answering the question. She's clearly being put down by this more experienced, you know, very, very, you know, curmudgeonish teacher. And you're still, at least I am, I'm still just all, I'm like, no, you go, girl. I'm like, you get back out there. You you read a book. You know, in the thing where she's like, uh, I didn't know there was an assignment, so I didn't read the first 48 pages of this. And I'm like, well, go read it. You can do it, you know? Like, I'm so on her side. <laughs> and I think that's what makes her so endearing, so she makes a mistake that all of us could have made. Yeah, yes. There's no, there's no heightened sense of reality in the first one, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. whereas the first one solely exists in a heightened sense of reality. Uh, and I think even the scene that I just mentioned and this grounded sense of reality that carries throughout the first movie, making it so much more relatable to anybody, is that great scene when she's in the uh, like kumbaya circle on the college campus that I'm sure many of us have had to go through. Uh, if you're not old enough yet, you will go through it, unless COVID has destroyed the university system. I don't know. Actually, I kind of do know it has. But where everybody's like, we're going to go around and share a little bit about ourselves. What do you got to say? One guy goes, I'm David Kidney. One girl goes, I'm a feminist. And one girl is like, well, I'm going to be bubbly and over the top, and I want to talk to everybody, and I want to keep doing this, that, the other thing. Where That's the person that gets singled out because it's the scales almost tip against social butterflyism and towards social awkwardness in this weird setting. And when she continues to do that in the classroom, you're like, I get it. Like, she's totally the fish out of water, and it works so well to perpetuate that through the whole thing as she slowly wins everybody onto her side. And it's wonderful. <laughs> In the second movie, she's like, I'm going to write a bill. And it's like, no, bitch, calm down. <laughs> like, there's many <laughs> layers we should have gotten to before you writing legislature. <laughs> well, that's the thing, though. Like, and it just moves too fast. Like, you have that moment where, like, okay, it's like, oh, I want my dog's mother to be at my wedding because that's a thing that happens in real life. That's the thing. Like, if you look at the premise of the first film, it's very much believable to be like, okay, I'm going to go to law school to win back the love of my life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, that is a very, very relatable premise. Sure. And then you have the second film where it's like, oh, I want to release my dog's mother from a cosmetic testing facility like that's just like no no <laughs> with, with none other than james urbaniak as the garden whose first scene shows up and says they don't even give me a key because i used to swallow keys you swallow one key they don't give you keys and i'm like what that, yeah I, 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 <laughs> come on open this door immediately who are you what are you doing here you have my dog's mom in there and i need her to come out right now Absolutely not. I'm not authorized to release any subjects from their containment units. I'm not even allowed to have a key. You swallow the thing one time, and all of a sudden you're the weird key swallower who can't be trusted. I picked up on that, too, and I'm just like, what is going on yeah. right now? Well, I'm like, I'm like oh, are we, I'm are so we about to turn into, like, a pica fiction? Not, like, pica, uh, what's that, strange food addiction thing where the James Urbaniac just wants to eat keys? <laughs> yeah, like, that was just... Yeah, like I, I it was just like, what is going on right now? <laughs> and then you, then it's like, okay, like she goes to her law firm, and once again, like it, it's, it's almost as if the L Woods from the first film, isn't even like there in the second film. It's a complete. It's, 
again, the second film feels like a remake of the first film if the people making it had no understanding as to what made the first film resonate with audience. Well, I think they jumped too far ahead. I think in the second one at the beginning, she thinks she's super lawyer. She thinks she can do anything. Is that what it is? That, that's what I think because she literally goes to who I was shocked to see, Octavia Spencer security guard at the beginning yeah. of the second one. And Octavia Spencer is like, listen, you can't come into this medical testing facility. You've got the wrong Versace. Yeah, and L Woods is just like, nope, I'm a, I've shopped on Versace in five continents. I can go anywhere I want. And it's like, no, the L Woods that we know, even accomplishing as much as she did in the first movie, she would realize that there's authority and boundaries she has to respect, which is something that the movie starts like she thinks she doesn't need to do knocks her down a peg when Regina King shows up and then builds her back up to that to think that she's going to be president? It's, 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 it's all wrong. And I think that's why. I think at the start, she thinks she can do anything because she revealed somebody else killed somebody else. And that's not, like I, like I said, there's steps, there's layers. The second movie would have been way better if she had to do, like, a high, a higher profile case, maybe involving a politician, not literally changing politics. But I think that's the issue is that like the second film almost lives in a universe where the first film doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, th- I, th- I honestly feel they're mutually exclusive. I, I think you don't need to watch the second film to have any understanding of the first film. I think, Absolutely. in all honesty, watching the first film would impede your enjoyment of the second film because you'd be like, oh. Yeah, this, yeah. This this is not – like I said, I, don't, I honestly think it's a, it, the Elle Woods in the second film is a, is a character that the events of the first film didn't happen to because she's too stupid. Mm-hmm. Like she's, mm-hmm. she's genuinely dumb and stupid in the second film, whereas the mistakes she makes in the first film are 100 percent human. Yes. This one, the mistakes she makes in the second film are, are inexplicable and, and inexcusable. That you, that I think you just hit the nail on the head, a hundred percent. And I guess I'm very tied to the idea of it being the same character watching these films basically back to back in the last few days. I, it, but you're absolutely right. She is doing things she thinks in the first movie. She thinks she can come into law school and be as successful and popular as she has been in her previous life. Very quickly gets cut down. Realizes how to adapt. In the second movie, she thinks she can change U.S. politics in the same way. It's too much of a reach. And exactly. And I think that is – again, this is something that I, – I don't think I've said a lot on Cinematis, but I know it's come up a lot on Knights of Vader. It's the, it's the term of fundamental misunderstanding of the source material. Sure. And I think that's where it comes from. It's like the people who wrote the second one did not understand A – the message that the first one was trying to get at and B it's just, if if they did, they misinterpreted it completely differently. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it was meant to be. And I think that's the problem. Is that because like a lot of stuff that happens in the second film, the L woods from the first film would never fall into the trap in because in the yes. first film, she, for the first, what third, she's very effervescent. She's very much just like, okay, I'm going to let my personality, my bubbly personality, mm-hmm. Win everybody over, but then she realizes, she realizes she needs to adapt. Yeah, and you have that moment in the form of the oh god after the uh, Halloween party where we see her buying a computer as a Playboy bunny. Yep, and yep. it's like you see her through montage transform. 
Yep, absolutely. And then that you have that metamorphosis. And, and again, it's visual storytelling. We don't have a moment of her like talking it out. We they show it, not tell it, and it's perfect. It's everything you could ever possibly want out of cinema. But in like the second film, you have like instead of having that moment where you see her buying the computer dressed as a Playboy bunny, you have her at a nail salon doing a weird sorority dance with a congresswoman and it's like it's like this is embarrassing this is yes. stupid like you're you're hu- like movie you're humiliating yourself and, and and it's like oh then you have a moment like after that where you have a like in the movie makes such a freaking like god so so obvious like oh we have a conservative nra deep southern congressman whose dog is gay and we actually have a moment in the film i'm pretty sure rob if he hasn't already inserted already (laughs) we'll have the clip put in where we have the person who's in charge of the i don't call it dog salon be like your dogs are gay and we see a woman pick up her dog and run out of the dog salon Please tell me he's okay. What's wrong with Leslie? All right, we have it under control now, but your Rottweiler has been humping your little dog. And vice versa. Your Chihuahua's quite the little leaper, young lady. Takes a running start. Well, hell, what can I say? My Rottweiler's a stallion. Tell me something I don't know. And in our household, we fully support a healthy curiosity. Testosterone is natural. Wait. Did you say stallion? Wait a minute. Your dog. The one wearing that ridiculous pink skirt in the park? Why would she have testosterone? That wasn't a skirt. It was a skort. Men wear skorts. Uh-huh. What the heck is a skort? And what has a man wearing one got to do with it anyway? I... Leslie is a less. The Rottweiler is a guy. And Bruiser is a male dog who happens to enjoy wearing pastel. The canines are both male. Your dogs are gay. <gasps> what my yeah. legitimate note? I don't even know why I'm adding legitimate because I never lie about my notes on this. Is that there is a gay panic scene with Reese Witherspoon's and Bruce McGill's dogs? <laughs> yes. It is a it is a one hundred percent gay panic scene, which then turns into a hard cut to the two dogs playing together where Reese Witherspoon's tiny dog has a leather daddy outfit on. And I'm like, wait, hold up. I thought we were going to have a problem with this. But it immediately goes to, yeah, I don't know, let him hump? <laughs> but, like, that's the thing. You know what's so weird is that, like, the movie is trying to be progressive but in a very peculiar way. Mm, mm-hmm. Like the movie wants to be progressive, but like in the safest way possible being like, Oh, my dog humped another male dog. I guess they're gay. And it's like, what? Cause like, even in the first film, like there's nothing like that in the first film. No, not at all. The The dog, it, even the dog itself in the first film is an accessory, not a character. Like, it becomes in the You second. took the words out of my mouth. Exactly. You <laughs> took the words right out of my mouth. Accessory being the key word there. And yet, like you said earlier in this discussion, gay dog is a plot point. 
Yes, and it might be my in a in a weird. You said cinematical before. Yes. I might want to say like, like cinema sadistical, maybe to even throw sadist in there. I love that aspect of this movie. Like hardcore, love the fact that in the reveal between Reese Witherspoon, the receptionist, and Bruce McGill, that both of their dogs are male. We get to hear Bruce McGill say the line, "What the hell is a scort? What the heck is a scort?" It it in a very painful way as a viewer, I love that. <laughs> But like, I no, like, is it is it like God? I don't even know how to describe it. Is it jarring in that sequence where like they both get like the page slash phone call to come to like the dog salon? Yes, and you have the receptionist like trying to explain to them, Mm -hmm. and she eventually like concludes her little monologue with, "Your dogs." Yay! <laughs> and I'm just like, and, and like, I, I I find it abhorrent, not like on a socio political level, but on like a direction slash acting. Level. Oh, of course, because it's it's way like it's too embarrassing, poignant to the audience that I feel at the start the receptionist says like, your dog's been humping her dog, and then her dog humped your dog, and anybody should go immediately. Oh, well, okay, you know. This, this is what dogs do. And then it really lays yeah. it on so thickly with with saying that they're gay, with the shot to the woman picking up her dog and running out of the salon. We also cannot undercut the fact that the 911 emergency thing that gets Reese Witherspoon and Bruce McGill to the salon is the equivalent of a Olive Garden, I'm waiting for my table beeper. <laughs> it's, it's, it's out of this world. You actually might be convincing me, Zach, that at the start I said, I don't know if I want to think this is from a different reality. I don't think it's from a reality as far from ours as Freddy Got Fingered, but it might be one or two dimensions over. I know. It's bizarre. I can all honesty, instead of calling it Legally Blonde 2, Rebite and Blonde, it should just be called like, like Bizarro Legally Blonde. <laughs> Do you think they should have went with illegally blonde? <laughs> I, I I just I, I I don't know who's to blame here because I didn't do enough research into like who had sort of creative control in the second film because there isn't really a lot of information on that. It seems like like the movie comes out the first film comes out in two thousand one. It's a smash. Everyone's just like, okay, there's money here. Let's go for it. Like, yes, like there, there's there's oil in the ground. Let's drill. Um, the second film comes out, and the fact that like it's been almost twenty years, and we haven't got any sort of follow up with Reese Witherspoon, leads me to believe that she understands that let's leave well enough alone. I know they've been threatening for a while now to make a third film. Supposedly, Mindy Kaling is writing it. Um, I was going to ask you. I if have you read not. about this that apparently it's slated for. Like Next year, twenty twenty two. Yes, I can't. I didn't write down the. I think yeah. it might have been March, if I read correctly. Um, but apparently, it's it's in the works currently. It's it's been in the works forever. Oh, of course, yeah. Um, I, I I think Reese Witherspoon is smart enough. It's either her or her people or a combination of the two. That like let's not let's not sell you a thing that made her into an international superstar. I like I said I I think I think if they made uh, Legally Blonde three, um, it, a it would be horribly horribly misguided sure because it would be that same sort of phenomenon as to why like the 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 fox broadcast networks readaptation of the rocky horror picture show didn't work everything that was progressive about this thing Mm -hmm. in its original time period 
is 100% irrelevant now. Everything that made Elle Woods seem unique in 2001 is no longer applicable in 2021. Sure. Yeah, I, I think I know where you're coming from. It's – I don't there's know. Nothing, there's nothing – almost like there's nothing – let me elaborate on that. There's nothing you can have Elle Woods, the character, do in 2001 that would make her as universally appealing now as she was in 2001. Elle Woods is one of those things where it's called, like, let's leave well enough alone. It's sure. called let's – like, if Reese, if Reese Witherspoon wants to be in a, oh, God, film where she's the – like, it's a star vehicle, that's fine. Digging up the bones of the Legally Blonde franchise is not it. Oh, I agree with you. There. I agree with you there completely because it it has steeped itself definitively in a law slash politics courtroom drama, which I don't think anybody wants to see these days. And I think the issue is, if you were to do a Legally Blonde three, it would fall down like the rabbit's hole of like almost like a Mariska Hargitay Law and Order Savo. Yes, that that is that is absolutely correct. And I think what would be like, and I think especially with the way Hollywood is trending, it would it would fall into the trap of getting political. Sure. I think oh, whether it be through gay rights, transgender rights, Lord knows what. I think Hollywood wouldn't be able to resist making the plot something political. And I think Reese Witherspoon is savvy enough to realize. The people who make this film resonate is like middle America because Elle Woods in the first film is a definition of the all-American girl. Yep, absolutely. And making a third film, especially with what – like you said, it would have to be some sort of like a crime drama to some level. It would fall into that sort of trap. Sure, And I think everybody involved, the powers that be, realize if you were to do that, the film would not be successful. A hundred percent. A hundred especially, percent. Especially with someone like Mindy Kaling writing it. Ah, jeez. I have I have no idea what Mindy Kaling's done for the last seven, it's, eight it's, years, but... It's, it's NBC sitcom mentality. Ex- exactly. That's the last thing I know her from is The Office, so... It would be Aubrey... It would be that same sort of this thing of Tina Fey, Aubrey Plaza. It would be in that same sort of pantheon. And you would get something that would easily disenfranchise seventy five percent of the people that yep. love yep. that love that first film. Absolutely, I think and, you're absolutely and right. I, in all honesty, if I were Reese Witherspoon, I would keep optioning the rights, but I would never let a feature film go into production. Like if you wanted to license out, like I know they did, like Legally Blondes, where it was like tangentially connected to the series. Mm-hmm. It was just a way to keep the brand name popular and to collect a check. That I get, but like. As to like leaving the legacy of the first film alone, if I were Reese Witherspoon, I would, I would, I wouldn't go near it. I would, it would be one of those things where like, like let me produce more streaming service like content, yeah, but don't touch that film. I think that that's film totally will be my, fair. like that film will be my legacy. So it's best not to forget about infringe. Don't even go near it. Because that, that will be what she's remembered for. I don't care yeah. whether it be 10, yeah. 20, 30 years from now. Elle Woods from the first film is what Reese Witherspoon will be remembered for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, you're not wrong. I, I agree with you. If if they're going to touch it <laughs> – sorry. If they have the thought, don't touch it. Two pitches if they do touch it, which I, I have to throw forward. One, bring back 
Osgood Perkins and have him direct it as a <laughs> hardcore horror film because other than the sci-fi ep- episode that I mentioned earlier, uh, which everybody should check out, do not watch the other 19 episodes of Twilight Zone unless you are a cinematicist, whatever I said. Cinematicist, yeah. He's I also like that. directed The Black Coat's Daughter, which is a fairly decent horror film as far as I'm concerned for the modern era, even though Zach knows I don't like a lot of horror. But that's where he kind of sits today. Bring back Osgood Perkins to do a, a dark horror courtroom thriller. I don't know what that would be, but I trust Osgood Perkins to make it because of that 45 minutes of Twilight Zone episode because it's that good. Two, make the sequel to Gone Girl where they have to deal with the court follow-up. Because if you remember, that Gone Girl ends where Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike are just like, we have to live together because we fucked up so bad. Make it the fallout of them, one of them, and maybe that's the twist of the movie, which one revealed that they both fucked up so bad. that You cannot make a goofy, and like you said earlier, charming courtroom drama anymore like these two movies, well, the first one succeeds at and the second one attempts to be. Because that's, I, I fundamentally think that's impossible today. You Like you said, Rob, you'll get the SVU. Rob? Rob. What is the movie called? You said Gone Girl. I think you mean Goo Gone. Goo Gone. I thought you were gonna say Goner Girl. Rob, it's not. She's Gone more Gone. It's Goo Gone. It's Goo Gone. Rob, come on. Come on. But think, this think about that, Zach. That might actually be some fun shit. You get Tyler Perry back as Ben Affleck's lawyer. We get to see Ben Affleck again. Uh, Did we, get... we have we we <laughs> talked about Goo Gone a little bit on the podcast? You did your reigning a David Fincher. Oh yeah, like, it's not that good. Goo <laughs> Gone is like schlock cinema. Like like as the novel was something you read like as a book you pick up like at the airport yeah, like yeah. airport bookstore. The movie is the cinematic equivalent of that. You watch it once and you're like, oh, Neil Patrick Harris gets this like throat slate. But like a Roseman Pike in like lingerie. It's one and of it's the like, movies okay, where once on. you know the twist, it's never worth seeing or thinking about again. Because what the, twist? It's so blatant. The twist that she's not dead. I know that's why. Well, I mean. yes, of course it comes it's before the middle point of the movie, but that's the only fun part in the movie. <laughs> but like that, okay, okay. As someone who read that book before the movie was like released, it's like there was no twist to that book. It's so blatantly obvious, like. God, the first half of that book is written from her perspective, and then, like, it's meant to be a major shock, like, oh, she's still alive. And it's like, no. Like, it was kind of <laughs> obvious this is where it was trending. And I'm just like, great. Like, I, I'm happy for everybody that, like, what was her name? Jillian Anderson, whatever her name is, like, got a nice check out of it. But, like, there's nothing revelatory in that book at all. I, I will admit I've never read the book. Uh, but I've seen the movie twice. It's not one of my favorite Finchers. I know some people like it. All you need, all you need to know is that you see Ben Affleck's ding dong, and that is worth the price uh, of the minute. And Ben Affleck gets to see Emily Ratajkowski's boobies. So, oh, who didn't yeah. win here? <laughs> but to be fair, like if you had to choose between Ben Affleck's ding dong 
and Emily, stupid names like boobies. I think we both know what we would pick. Oh, I, I, t- I take an 815ers birthday ding dong 100% of the time. Yes. I also yes. really, really love the fact that, Zach, for the author of Gone Girl, you dropped Jillian Anderson, who plays. It's Jillian Flynn. Jillian you... Flynn. I'm sorry. No, it's I'm done. Sorry. No, Scully wrote Gone Girl in Zach's universe. It's canon <laughs> God now. God damn it. God <laughs> it's damn canon. It. Everybody, get on that subreddit that nobody but me's on. We're talking about this. <sighs> God damn it. God damn it, Rob. Oh, that's I'm wonderful. sorry. I'm sorry. Jillian Flynn. I haven't read that book in, like, God, over a decade. Understandable. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rob. So, you. so yes. Yeah, that those are my two pitches on how to uh, do Legally Blonde 3. And I think either dark horror courtroom drama or the courtroom thriller – are my pitches, but not the right way to do it. I'm with you, Zach. Don't do it at all. But we'll see what happens. I mean, right... I don't know. Like, it just depends on how desperate Reese Witherspoon is for a chat. She can't be that desperate, though, from everything we said. Out to... No, because she hasn't done anything. Ma- I think about it, though. Like, at one point, Reese Witherspoon, like, she has a goddamn Oscar. Like, she, remember, a lot of these actors, like, when they become, like, like when they hit their, like, mid-40s and middle age, they become very vain and want to reclaim what they once had. And considering that, like, it's funny, Reese Witherspoon won an Oscar for what being what June in Walk the Line. Yes, yeah, June Cash Carter or Carter Cash, whatever the order of the names was. Yeah, whatever. Think about that. She will not be remembered for that, but she, but in her obituary, she'll be known as Elle Woods. Jeez, that, that that's true. That's true. Um, it, it's kind of also upsetting that when I think of Walk the Line, I think of the wife character, I think of Amy Adams from the Dewey Cox story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Um, but, like, think about that, though. That, like, and that must just drive her up a wall. That, like, sure. Elle Woods will be the thing she's remembered for. And I think she's going to want to, in a way... What's the word? Have her final say on that? I, I was going to say something like that. Have her third act in her career that really solidifies her her legacy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think, in all honesty, I would have given her an Oscar for Elle Woods over June Carter. Oh, 100%. She's so good in this movie. <laughs> that's what I mean. And that's the thing. So I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's what her intent is. With making a legally blonde threat. That's fair. That's a fair point. That's a fair point. But I want. I, I know. Like obviously, we, we've said numerous times on Cinemodies, we get into the philosophical and we kind of get derailed from there. I just want to talk about some things from that second film. Okay. Okay. Like, oh god, like the soundtrack. Is, like, like as a kid, I love the soundtrack. Like I have it somewhere in the house. I don't know where it is, but I still have it somewhere. Yeah, you mentioned that earlier. You said you owned it. <laughs> I you have no idea how much as a kid I listened to the "We Got Mo Bounce in California." <laughs> then y'all combine. We got Mo Bounce in California. Like I love that as a kid. That is um, so. That is so you, Zach, to take the Soul Kid song off of the soundtrack more yes, than the George yes, Clinton yes. song. Jesus, that hurts. No, no, me. Whoa, 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 Oh, you're whoa, about whoa, to change whoa. this. Okay. I also, I also had more bounce. I also had that the remix because like I remember like ten years ago finding out that the original version was like more bounce to the ounce. Yeah. Um. No. Like George. I, it's funny. Oh God. 
such a weird thing to admit on a podcast. Um, <laughs> remember, remember old Greg? I'm old Greg. Yeah, of course, of course. Remember, um, remember the funk? This is as close <gasps> as you can get to Bailey's the without funk. drowning in it. <laughs> yes, <sighs> the funk. Because <sighs> um, remember, the funk was played with by like different like disco musicians, mm-hmm. specifically mm-hmm. George Clinton in Parliament, and they kicked it overboard and they lost the funk. Uh, Parliament Funkadelic, thank you very much. I've seen them in concert before. Yes. <laughs> but like prior to like the old Greg thing, that's who I that's how I knew who George Clinton was from. It was from the <laughs> Okay. From the, from the dog song. Um and that's the thing. Like the that second film, you have like, and again, this is the problem with cinemas. We get so bogged down in the philosophical, sometimes we lose track of the actual moments of the film themselves. Um but you have that moment. In the second film, we're like after like numerous, numerous baiting moments where it's like, oh, all you've got to do is go to room two one six for like oh, freshman yep. for like for like intern orientation, and you have the two like ditzy friends, and they recruit the interns, and you have like the interns do the little like the dog dance, and it's like you have like all the like what congressmen vote for it. Yep. And yep. it's just like it's, absolutely it's, it's like, horrendous when that when that dance number ends, which I have nothing against the dance number. It's a fever dream once again, as we've been saying. But it cuts to the shot of all the congressmen running back to seemingly sign the uh, the discharge of the bill, Bruiser's bill. We get terrible ADR of something like, "Well, I'll sign that bill." And that that's another reason I think this movie is crazy, but I also take points away from it because the ADR is so bad. I'll put the clip in. But it is literally like when you see it in the movie, the collective entity of Congress is saying that line. It's not mixed appropriately. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, no, not at all. And just even how that like – I don't know what you would call it, musical – dance number happens it's 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 got to be just a piece of choreography i'm sure whatever you'd call it but like but it's so out of place and jarring oh absolutely that is and i think that's what i find most abhorrent about it it's also taking place as from what we can tell correct me if i'm wrong zach if you know this better than i do in the grand staircase lobby of the building of congress of the capitol right yeah like they're just able to run up and do this like, there were many points in the second one going to what I said earlier about how I think it's too much of a leap to go to Washington and impact politics. You have—this uh, is not going to sound as good as, as I hope somebody knows what I mean. You have bimbos able to run around the steps of Congress in this movie, and that just takes me out of it, where it's like, no— we had the whole first act establishing Elle Woods got into law school. We have scenes of them saying, oh my god, it's crazy that you're here, you know, that type of stuff. But here you just have, like, impromptu cheerleader dance numbers in the building of Congress that would immediately end in multiple security guards tasing those people. And and it's just too far. It's too far of a step for me. It's too the gay dogs. I'm fine with this. Too far of a step. <laughs> I think it's like that part doesn't even bother me. I think what it is is that like it just like it just comes out of nowhere. 
Yeah, no, you're not you're not wrong either. Absolutely. That it is literally like they see the the joke, I guess if you can even call it a joke, I think I think it's one of the laziest in both of these movies, is that the two girls, Reese Witherspoon's friends, go, Why do they keep sending us to room two sixteen? And they look at the sign and it implies that they can only read the word orientation because they've seen it before. And since they're sorority girls on a college campus, they know that orientation should be fun and exciting and exuberant and maybe have a a, a cheerleader number. Like, it, I think it's so lazy, it comes out of nowhere, and I got... I don't like it. Followed up, when you put the cherry on top of bad ADR, no, no, no for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think I do want to say as well, the, the worst part of the second movie, I'm interested if we're talking about the parts of the second movie, the worst thing in this movie, quite possibly, the thing that I think almost, you know, completely ruins it from having any chance at matching the first one without, you know, talking about the first one in more detail, the snap cup being used in Congress in the final scene. Yeah, oh, no, I think that is, that's like a, that's a cinematic crime. D- to imply that that would happen is... Utter bullshit, I think. (laughs) I don't even know if I can put that in words effectively, how much I hated that. (laughs) No, I I agree wholeheartedly. Okay. Um, Good. No, no, that's, like I said, at the very end. um, We would have another hour here if you disagreed with me. (laughs) No, but, like, that's the thing, though. Like, the first film feels so just like anybody, again, there's that level of just, like, intersubjectivity where you can insert yourself into the character yep. as like an avatar. Absolutely. Like, when it comes to Elle Woods. And that second film, it, the movie is fantasy. The, that second film is 100% fantasy. Maybe it's a, like, a good way to say it is I it's think... It's like Bizarro Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Oh, abs- absolutely. And I, I think maybe the good way to say it, to, to think of it, is I think I sided more with Regina King than Elle Woods in the second movie. Can we say that Regina King is one of the most, like, like given the right script and direction... Regina King can be a lot of fun in any movie, and she's just, like, the most miserable character in this film. Uh, Counterpoint, can we say that Regina King is Dr. Manhattan? You have to remember that, Zach. Regina King is in current Watchmen canon, Dr. Manhattan. Boom! If If I could drop the mic without ruining the recording or breaking my mic, I would, but boom goes the dynamite. That might be the stupidest thing I've ever said. <laughs> God damn it, Rob. God damn it. <laughs> you also have to remember that her grandfather may or may not be an elephant. I didn't fully understand that scene in Watchmen. <laughs> Rob, stop quoting things people want. I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, I think everybody knows right now Billy Crudup might have a big blue penis, but Regina King is Dr. Manhattan. Do they ever show Regina King like like big blue and glowy? No, to be fair, they don't. What a waste. But they heavily imply... No! Oh, wait, no, no, the final shot is not her big blue and glowy, but she is able to walk on water. That's the implication. That's Of dumb. the last episode of... Oh, don't get me wrong, Zach. The entire Damon Lindelof script of Watchmen is dumb. I'm not disagreeing with you there. <laughs> Rob, are you implying that David Lindelof doesn't have his act together? Um, more so than ever, I might be implying. (laughs) 
Are you telling me the writer of Tomorrowland does not have it all figured oh out? Oh my god, that was the one I was forgetting. <laughs> it kind of oh, pains me whenever I have to talk about Lost. I think that Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse were undercut by J.J. Abrams, but also have to like juxtapose this to the fact that Damon Lindelof went on to make terrible things for the rest of his career. <laughs> to be fair, Damn I haven't seen The Leftovers. I haven't not seen The Leftovers, so don't at me on that. I don't even know why I say that anymore. Nobody asks me. <laughs> don't at me on my non-existent Instagram and Twitter accounts. Yes. yes. If anybody had any opinion on the subreddit, though, please give that to me. I'm the only person that posts on there. <laughs> But no, like, but going back to the third one, like, we haven't talked about a lot about like Sally Field's character, um, the interns' characters, um, like it's just like, it, and we haven't really even at all talked about Jennifer Coolidge's character. Like in the yeah, first film, yeah. in the first film, she plays like the ditzy like sidekick character, and she's kind of cute and endearing as a character because it's like, oh, Elle's just helping her out, like she's well intentioned, like she's there as her like emotional support. Yeah, another possible quote at the start of this episode, I was going to say, "I'm taking the dog, dumbass." <laughs> you look like the Fourth of July, and I really want a hot dog. You texted me that it's before like... I knew what it was. Uh, when I was a sad boy, no, when I was sad boy, as I texted you. <laughs> Missed a whole article in that text. <laughs> yeah, and just, like, Jennifer Coolidge in the first film is endearing, like everybody else is. In the second film, I honestly think there's not a single sequence of her, except for maybe one shot that she's not, like, awkwardly, like, edited in. Because, like, there's like, only the one scene in the entire film that her and Elle share a scene together. No, you're you're not Everything wrong. after that is, like, edited, it's, like, like jarringly edited in. That might be the best way to put it. For for characters that we do get returning uh, from the first to the second, of the ones we haven't talked about, of course, Jennifer Coolidge, wildly fantastic in the first movie. One of, I think, my favorite Jennifer Coolidge performances in a long time. As much as maybe the one thing at, to this day and point, and, and I don't want to make this a whole thing, Zach, she might be the best part of Promising Young Woman, Jennifer Coolidge. That movie might be abject trash the more I think about it. But she is so good in this movie with the whole bend and snap, with the awkward interactions with the UPS guy, who he's credited as the UPS guy. I think she's great in the first movie. I think literally the bend and snap scene is everything Claus wanted to be. The second movie? God... Uh, she she might as well have been, you know, sedated or something, right? <laughs> but because by the second movie, like, even how the movie begins, you have, like, them, like, doing the voiceover over, like, the album book, like, recapping oh. the events of the first movie. Yes. Yeah. Oh it just God. comes across as, it's it just comes across just lazy. You, and it's like, oh, like, we don't understand why any of this clicked with audiences. It was the exact earlier. opposite experience, like I said earlier, when I watched the first movie and we hit shared billing of Oz Perkins and Linda Cardellini, I, like, giggled like a schoolgirl. When we are doing the same thing in the second movie, where we get to Sally Fields and Reese Witherspoon in a picture in a scrapbook, and some character says, they like me, they really like me, I wanted to die. <laughs> well, okay, the thing that drove me nuts about that moment is that, like, in the film... Like, you have, oh, God, the, the, the two ditzy sorority friends whose names I forget. And they're like, 
there, like, you see that picture of them together, like Reese Witherspoon yeah. and Sally Field. It's like there goes two badass ladies, and I'm just like, like what? Yeah, I think that's the direct line like, before. I'll have to put the clipping because I didn't write it down because it infuriated me. But it's something like there they go, two badass ladies, you know. Oh, oh look, so there boring. she is with Congresswoman Rudd. That's when they started the Harvard Alumni Women's Event. Yeah, that's two kick-ass women. I like them. I really like them. They like me. They really <laughs> like me. So they they force in the famous Sally Fields Oscar speech that I think today's day and age nobody remembers what it's from. Like, what is it? Do do you know honestly? Because I don't know. Is it from Norma Ray in the eighties? Like, what what could that have been yeah. from? Because she's, it's, she's, it's a she's Robin that... Williams' wife and Mrs. Dow. Sally Fields infuriates. Sally Field infuriates me. <laughs> Why has Sally Field done in recent times? Nothing. Like, she, she's based... zero things. She's zero. writing off the success of an Oscar speech from the eighties. What well, was it, Norma? Right now, I'm doubting. About, was it fried green tomatoes? What the <laughs> hell could she have been? It's not Magnolia. That's too late, right? Mm-hmm. I don't I even want to look. It, I don't even want to look it up to have this in my search history. Jesus. <laughs> Do it incognito, Rob. Do it incognito. <laughs> it, it, it is infuriating how, one, they get Sally Field, who I don't think is a bad actress. I think we know her as the public for the wrong reason, and then give her nothing to do except be like, yeah, I'm the bad politician. Just wait maybe three to seven years and you'll get Frank Underwood as the worst version of me. And it's like <laughs> nobody because she came across in this movie as, you know, Kevin Spacey and House of Cards going, you know. Does she though? Like yeah. by the end, but like through the goddamn like like overlay, they make her into like a decent human being retroactively. She, well, like, once again, it's another example of showing, not telling. I think this goes like, back to something it's... you said in an earlier episode. I don't remember. I those overlays are almost wholly useless. But you're right. That's just like she was the last signature they needed, or whatever the hell it was. You know. Yeah, it, and, it's a weird version of like redemption. Of like again, but yeah, once again, it's telling, it's a, not it's showing. A bad version of redemption because in the movie she plays conniving politician. And she comes across as, well, I'm not going to sign this bill because i got to sign this bill and my constituents won't like that. And it's like, Jesus Christ, why wasn't this movie in third-year law school? Why did this jump to Washington? Which I've already said is my problem. So it, it, it's infuriating, though, how they misuse Sally Field. And to get at something you said earlier, which I, I want to comment on as well, how they misuse Regina King also. My counterpoint still yeah, stands right. that she is Dr. Manhattan. You cannot deny that, Zach. You, you literally, you will get canceled if you deny that she's Dr. Manhattan. And she stops racist Don Johnson in the first episode of Watchmen. You, ca- you cannot deny that. I cannot. I cannot. But you're absolutely rock. right. I mean, like, somehow, I'm thinking of, like, when Regina King started to come into prominence, it was with those John Singleton movies like Boys in the Hood – She's the most fun part of Boys in the Hood, not because that's a fun movie. That's a very depressing movie, but because she's so good. And this movie, like you said, makes her to be the Selma Blair, the... And this is another thing we have to talk about. Elle's rival in the first movie is dark-haired white woman, which makes total sense because (laughs) Warner said, I need a Jackie and not a Marilyn. 
the second movie, they make her nemesis dark-haired black woman, which might be totally wrong for this. And then, here's the thing, Regina King, great actress, I absolutely love her. She probably is the best performing person other than Tim Blake Nelson in the Watchmen series, which is the last thing I saw story. her in. I don't know. <laughs> That's I don't know what that is, Zach. What are you even talking about? But then they make her a criminal performing political blackmail at the end. And I'm like, why? Why couldn't she just come over to Elle's side? Why couldn't they have... If this movie's making up fantasy nonsense left and right whenever they want to, why didn't they make Regina King somehow win with the power of good? But she's the one. She literally has the line. L, I know you're not above, you're you're below blackmail, but I'm above it. You have to pull something no regular citizen would ever dream of. Okay, fine, but how am I gonna do that? You're gonna address the entire Congress, and I know just the person to make it happen. Who? I mean, is that even possible? Look, L, you may be above blackmail, but I'm not. And we get that stupid little scene where Sally Field tries to grab the video, uh, the video cassette, or just cassette, from her hands, and she goes, "No, no, no! I'm blackmailing you!" And I'm like, "This is terrible! This is literally comical!" I guess is the way I think about it now after watching it. <laughs> I don't know if it's comical. It's like embarrassing. Embarrassing is a really good way to put it, because later on we get the scene where Sally Field is at the head of Congress talking to entirety of Congress, and she looks up at Regina King, and Regina King waves the video cassette and goes, no, 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 and I'm like, oh my god, movie, how can you be this strange? Like, you sold me. Honestly, you know what I want from Legally Blonde 2? In retrospective, Legally Blonde 2 should have been sexually charged dog antics. Like I've said before, Sabrina Goes to Hell, a.k.a. true title, Sabrina Goes Down Under, the A-plot is sexually charged cant antics. Oh, yeah. I want sexually charged dog antics from this movie. The political shit could go out the window for all I care. And then what's the C-plot? They want to get married on... on Fenway Park? <laughs> I thought it's so funny. Like, in the film, in the first film, Emmett is like a perfect, like, a perfect emotional, like, oh god, buttress for L. Yes. In the second film, he's a hundred percent relegated to just like, I want to get married with like home plate, and it's like that's it, that's it. When he took, when Luke Wilson, not Emmett, when Luke Wilson, the actor, Zach just sent me a heart on Skype. When he took a phone call yes, I did. in front of his entire class, it fundamentally hurt me as a teacher. I just had to say that. That you you don't do that. One, because it's unprofessional. Two, because you don't want any of your students to know your personal life. Because if they do know your personal life, you get situations from where students from two years ago pop into your office for no reason and go, Hey, is this you on Cinemodities? I really like Zach gets to yell back at you. I never got to yell back at you when you were teaching me math. And I'm like, dude, this is terrible. I don't like any of this. <laughs> so the second movie is not good in that way. While we're on the topic of Luke Wilson, because, you know, we talked about uh, Jennifer Coolidge going from one to two. Luke Wilson also goes from one to two. I have to say, man, 
Luke Wilson in the first movie, I'm going distractingly handsome. Luke Wilson looks so good in this first movie. Does he have a lot to do until the last scene? No. But do I love looking at him? Oh, you bet I do. <laughs> That's a handsome man. He's, he, he might be the best looking. And of course, you know, people say, oh, Luke Wilson, Idiocracy. That's his best film. Objectively, in total, maybe his best film because that movie has a lot going for it. Best looking Luke Wilson? He's looking good in this movie, Zach. I, I, that was one of my notes. I had to get it out there. <laughs> Especially in the end credits where he's like all nice and tan. <laughs> ten, out, 10 out of 10. His tan only pales in comparison to the hardcore goggle tan lines of the friend in the second movie. Fair. Fair. <laughs> But so, did we miss anybody that crosses over in both movies? Luke Wilson, Jennifer Coolidge, Reese Witherspoon, of course, the friends. And the, and, and the two friends, yeah. Um, the uh, dog. The dog we talked did we, about. Did uh, Did you find any research about um, Selma Blair? Because I couldn't find anything. You mean in relation to this movie? or? Well, yeah. Because my. Mean, like, no, why no, she not. was in the second one. Not really. Um. I, I kind of took it at face value, and you know now that you say that, I'm I'm kind of surprised I didn't do any research about it. I took it as face value that she wasn't in the second movie because Elle moved on so heavily, it seems. Like, I think getting at what we were saying earlier, her new law firm is just a job that she got after graduating from law school. And also, Warren was not in it. I felt like if Warren had come back, the Selma Blair versus Warren versus L would have played a bigger role. But since neither of them came back, I thought of them as a package deal. Because most of that first movie, of course, we know they break up at the end. Most of that first movie is them together. You know, you know what I'm saying? I do. But just the fact that, like, in that, like, epilogue for the first time, they mentioned, like, oh, Selma Blair and Reese Witherspoon become such close friends. I kind of oh, expected oh, that Selma Blair I, have some level of presence. I thought, I thought we had covered that, which I don't think we explicitly did. I have read some dubious IMDb facts that have very little. The bat, the whoa, 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 the bastion of truth. No, they're not the bastion of truth. We we proved this like three months ago, Zach. They're not the bastion of truth. That in the original final scene after the kiss between Luke Wilson and Reese Witherspoon at the end of the trial. It was going to be a reveal that Selma Blair had dyed her hair blonde. And that Selma hair, Selma Blair with blonde hair might be the worst thing in the world. (laughs) Cause Selma Blair. Wait, what? What are you talking about? You didn't hear about, you didn't read about this? No, no. This was, this was supposedly, like I said, once again, don't, don't at me, Zach. Don't text me about this tomorrow. <laughs> she was supposed to have blonde hair and be on Elle's side of like, I can, ch- I shouldn't be this angry. I should change myself as well to see a new outlook on the world. Like it would have been her going to law school for an initial reason and then changing it to better herself. Like we talked about earlier, Selma Blair was supposed to reflect this in the first version of the script with blonde hair. I've never heard it before until just now. It was a dubious IMDb fact that I did not do as much research on that I should have because we had two movies to watch. But can I just say, Selma Blair's best performance, you know what it is. Anger Management with Charlie Sheen. Ron Perlman's Hellboy. Don't you dare. 
She is so good as Liz in Ron Perlman's Hellboy. I guess Guillermo del Toro's Hellboy, whatever you want to call it. The fire creating girl. She's moping those films. All she does is mope in those films. No, she's no, she's the perfect foil for Hellboy. No, no. Don't don't make fun of my high voice. <laughs> I love Selma Blair in the Hellboy movies. She might be the second best thing to uh, William Hurt. Am I confusing that with John Hurt? I'm not hedging my bet. I think you mean Doug Jones. I think you mean Doug Jones. Oh, Doug Jones. Doug Jones. Doug Jones, voiced by David Hyde Pierce. <laughs> exactly. Okay. Uh, tune in next week, next month, for the Hellboy movies. <laughs> but Selma Blair does not come back, of course. Uh, we have to talk because I mentioned it earlier, and I love her. Love seeing her in anything. Linda Cardellini. It takes nearly an hour and 15 minutes for Linda Cardellini to show up playing a character, which I absolutely love, Chutney Wyndham. Her first name is Chutney. Zach, do you know Linda Cardellini's first film appearance ever? I do not. Okay. It's Good Burger. She is one of the mental patients that they get locked up with, Keenan and Kel get locked up with, and sing Super Freak to Escape. And she looks identical in this movie as she does as a mental patient in Good Burger. And it might be one of the funniest things I've seen in a while. <laughs> I did not know that. Uh, of course, before Good Burger, she's on, I think, Freaks and Geeks starts the year before Good Burger, which is where she comes known from. But, I mean, can we... Can we just say, I don't know if we can say it, we haven't covered enough of her or talked about enough of her, Linda Cardellini never got her due. I think Linda, Linda Cardellini should have been better known than she is. I think the Velma in the Scooby-Doo movies might have done the trick but didn't because of, oh God, everybody else in that movie already being a superstar from things. You know, I'm, th I'm thinking about Freddie mm -hmm. Prince Jr. and Sarah Michelle Gellar. And an animated dog. Uh, but now she's in... She was in that stupid Curse of La Llorona. Who cares? Linda Cardellini, come back to us. Is she really in that trash? Yeah, I think she's the mother. In She's the mother... Because the Curse of La Llorona is a ghost mom trying to steal kids from real mom. I'm pretty sure Linda Cardellini is real mom. I think... She should have gotten so much more due than she ever did, and I think there's a lot of... Uh, this might be very woke of me, Zach. I think there's a lot of sexism in who survived after Freaks and Geeks because I personally think that's a garbage show that only people who could go on being funny smoking weed came out of. That's a whole discussion for another day. But I'm upset. I'm a little upset that Linda Cardellini, as good as she in, is in this movie, in one to two scenes, she's the one who gets screamed at by Elle Woods not knowing the basics of perms. Zach, you want to talk about something that wouldn't exist today? A scene where somebody screams at another person on a testimonial stand about the basics of perms. Am I right? <laughs> Especially two women. Oh, yeah. God, it feels like a Dave Chappelle sketch when I think about it now. <laughs> when you had, you had the, the uh, Charlie Murphy stories, right? Pretty much. 
I do want to talk about Osgood Perkins a little bit more. Like I said, everybody, please check out Season 2, Episode 20. You might also like From the Twilight Zone. I think it's really good. But the scene, speaking of what we were saying before, charming, wholesome, loving. Me personally loving, not loving in the sense, I think. The scene where Reese Witherspoon slaps Osgood Perkins and makes it seem like he's a master romancer so he can get a date. I love that scene. I thought that was, just being on the side of our main character, I thought that was the better version of what we will talk about later in this fort year from the first American Pie, where the equivalent is, his dick is big. Like, this, this was such good because the way Osgood Perkins plays it is that he doesn't know what's going on. This is so impromptu from Reese Witherspoon, and it ends up being one of the most... I don't know, friendly interactions I've seen in a movie in a while that she's helping him out. And I think... It's endearing. It's endearing. Endearing is a really good word. And I think that scene is the reason why Osgood Perkins not coming back for the second movie is a war crime. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. I don't think he had any character. I think he's more of a a glorified sad character. I don't know if I agree at all. I think he might have been one of the he might have been the the best analog of Reese Witherspoon coming up to meeting the the ground that law school set for her is that Reese Witherspoon comes in as this effervescent over the top exuberant character that needs to learn how to deal with different types of personalities and he almost comes in as the foil of being so dorky and quiet I think the scene that exemplifies what I'm saying is that they they meet themselves at the same point is when she becomes the lead lawyer for Allie Larder's case and he becomes the legal assistant. I don't disagree. Are you telling me that you're blinded by the fact that Osgood Perkins? Yeah, I don't think you've seen. I think you've seen one episode of The Twilight Zone. It's not the good one. It's the fucking <laughs> not the good one. It's the fucking this rock caused men to rape. What's the twist? Men just rape. I didn't even see. I didn't even see the octopus one, Rob. I know. I know the, the octopus. One. The octopus one. No, I I think that Osgood Perkins and Elle Woods, uh, Dave Kidney and Elle Woods. I'll use their character names are reaching the same humanistic level of growth at the end of the movie, but coming from different extremes. That's how I saw it, and that is why I think the scene when, you know, we get the reveal that him and Reese Witherspoon are going to be Ali Larder's new representatives in the court case that almost immediately gets them to win the court case is the triumph of the movie. I think the only thing, the only problem with that though, is that you don't get that like punctuation of it because he's not featured in the epilogue. You make a good point there. <laughs> that might be the third thing I add onto my list of what I don't like about this movie, and uh, he should be featured. And I don't. I'm not saying we should reveal that he has like a girlfriend or anything. I think it should be revealed that you know he becomes. Reese Witherspoon's right-hand man and goes on to her in these endeavors. And, you know, we have the the clearly telegraphed gay person secretary at the start of the second movie who's like, we got you balloons! And it's like, this should be Osgood Perkins. He doesn't need to be gay. He needs to be Osgood Perkins. He needs to be the goofy dude that we came to love in the first movie. I want to note, though, which I found very, very uh, interesting and jarring, is that the gay secretary 
from the first 10 minutes of the, of the second film, as soon as L is thrown under the bus by, like, the partners of the law firm, he basically just throws her under the bus as oh, well. Oh, it's, it's garbage. It's absolute garbage. The fact that we literally see him hear the main partner say, you don't have to work here, you're fired. He closes the door behind him and is never seen again. It's infuriating. Yeah. I, if this was any other, if this was the movie was made today, it would 100% be like a Jerry Maguire sequence of like Elle Woods would be Jerry. Yes. yes. And the gay assistant would be like the Renee Zellweger. Be like, okay, I'm going with you because I believe in you. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. You would, you're, you're exactly right. Jerry Maguire is a really good counterpoint for this movie in the sense that it would have been Tom Cruise and Renee Zellweger gender swapped with Reese Witherspoon and the secretary in that whole scene where Jay Moore is trying to poach all his clients. You're absolutely right. And this movie missed that easy opportunity. Rob, 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 what's the phrase that pays? Show me the what? Uh, show me the mummy. I did a hand. Our cameras are not. I did a hand motion when I did that. Zach. Show me the mummy. Show me God, the mummy. Goddamn right. Show me show the me mummy. mummy. <laughs> I that, love the mummy. Is that going to be our lasting show legacy for Jerry mummy. Maguire? We may never discuss that movie, but we will always say, "Show me the mummy." Rob, if you had to choose between one of one or the other, would you rather discuss Jerry Maguire or the Mummy starring Tom Cruise? Oh. Kind of the mummy. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> counterpoint, kind of the mummy unfinished trailer that got released. <laughs> uh, can we insert some of the audio of that in here, please? Uh, I don't need to insert it. I've memorized it perfectly like I should have done to the uh, Michael Shannon sorority letter. I'm pretty sure it goes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Rob, is there any way... Like, I want to see a crossover between Legally Blonde, like, Delta New sorority, and this, the Michael Shan sorority-like letter. Oh, it would be the best thing. What you described would be the best thing. Period. I want that. I want Everybody that, Everybody wants that. Everybody who didn't know they wanted that because they were unaware of the things we're talking about after listening to this episode now wants it. It's a guarantee. It's I a Santa it. Claus list desire of want. <laughs> Damn straight. Oh, man. Oh, it's so good. I think the only other character I want to talk about who does not return for the two movies, which might be the only one I think makes sense that doesn't return for the two movies, Victor Garber. As we talked about in our Titanic episode, Zach, I really, really like Victor Garber. I think well, he's— Well, Rob, 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 I can tell you why Victor Garber doesn't show up in the second film. Uh, Sex offender vibes in he the first movie? He ship, Rob. R.I.P. Oh, because he went down. Are you telling me that he went down with the ship four years before the movie we watched? <laughs> no, n- no, Rob. He went down with the ship six years before we watched it. <laughs> okay, I guess 2003. You're right there. You're right there. I was thinking of the first movie. Absolutely. Um, But, like, Victor Garber's great. My legitimate note when he does the hand on the knee of... L. Woods is no Victor Garber, don't be skeezy, no. <laughs> because Victor Garber is such a, a wholesome dude, I think, in general. I mean, we saw him in Titanic. We described that scene in Titanic that I think goes back to what you said you were saying earlier, Zach, is that it, it's almost um 
deceiving how simple some of this stuff is. It comes off as simple, but it, it is actually really complex. The scene in Titanic when the ship is tilting and you see the whiskey glass start to fall off and Victor Garber reaches to correct the time on the clock instead. That may seem like a very simple scene, but it is one of the most impactful, cleverly designed pieces of cinematography, I think, in film history. Because remember, guys, hot take. Titanic's a really good movie. I, I That's a Rob hot take. Of course, we disagreed about that for like 20 minutes when I said that on our episode, Zach, because that episode was 17 days long. Uh, it somehow ended up longer than AI artificial intelligence. But, I mean, even... Uh, what it's the the uh, sleep is in Seattle. He's Tom Hanks's best friend, right? No, or Meg Ryan's. I don't. God, I haven't seen Sleep is in Seattle so long. But he's he is such a good friend in that movie, and to see him be such a skeezy piece of shit in this movie is wildly upsetting. I love Victor I, Garber. I, I think the thing though about Victor Garber's character in this that I find interesting, it, not even interesting, probably not the right word, is that like he's he's. Being sleazy, but in the most tasteful way possible. Like, if this was any other movie, we would have, like, if this was made today, he'd be like sending her a dick pic. And even back sure. 20 years ago, I think he would be like trying to make out with her. And it'd be like at a bar, and he'd be like, come here, like, like my legally blonde. And he would like, stick his <laughs> tongue out or something like that. But like all he oh, does. Oh is, my like, god! Like, you it, just Zach, you just inadvertently gave me the best line ever. He would say, "L Woods, you giving me Woods." <laughs> it would be the perfect. worst thing to ever be put in a screenplay. <laughs> exactly, and I think if this was like anything else, he'd be very, very handsy. But like even. It's like the most like uh, like what's the word? The most tasteful version of inappropriateness you could ask for. All he does is grab her knee. Like it's so tastefully done. It 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 tastefully is done in the way of it is not rapey, it is implied quid pro quo. Yes. It's very it's pro very quid pro quo. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's there's a reason people need to remember this, which I know I actually talk whenever it comes up i i always have to harp on this there's a reason that sketch comedy of the early 90s went hard into quid pro quo sexual favors is because that oh, there was yeah. a level of tastefulness of it at least to the extent that we saw it in hollywood and you're right zach nowadays it's like listen you're gonna turn around to get me a paper clip and when you turn back I'm going to have a fully erect penis in your face. Oh, yeah. It, and and you're right. I have to agree with you. I didn't agree with you, Star, what you're saying. I do totally agree with you. It's a hand on the knee. It's a, what are you willing to do for this position? That's it. And that's all it takes. I'm not, I don't, I don't want, I don't want this to be seen at all as a diminishing, you know, sexual assault and bad relationships. But that's all it used to take in these movies. And now it's become something so much more absurd that I I can't fathom because there's no way at any point in time I'm going to literally expose myself entirely unless it's to somebody like Zach when we know we have that relationship. Is this the worst joke I've ever made on Cinemonies? <laughs> possibly, possibly. But I think, the key, I, I think the thing is is that you're looking for is the fact that like – it's not embellished. It's yeah, very yeah. straightforward. It's to the point. It's not over the top. 
it's concise and that in in anything like that in today's society does not know what the word concise is yeah a hundred percent you're absolutely right and it's uh like I said, you convinced me. That's actually really good that Victor Garber is being a skis ball. I probably overblew my uh, understanding of how much of a skeezy motherfucker he was because it's so slight and what we know about today's culture with that. And once again, it's not diminishing how bad that is, but there is a difference, which I think we can, are what we're both agreeing with, between just having a hand on the knee and something more forceful, which we see constantly in movies today. That deal with that subject material, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can hear. That was an mm-hmm that sounded like you didn't want to touch that topic. <laughs> so Fair enough. I think, Zach, I have lulled you into such a false sense of security by hitting you with all my thoughts on this movie that I can finally get to. There are two things that I really dislike about the first movie. Two aspects about the first Legally Blonde that I really dislike. One, and as I said at the very start of this conversation, I think both of these are very, very Rob nitpicks. I'm interested to see how you respond to them in that sense. One, there is too much close face-up shot reverse shot in this movie. We barely, I think it is two to three times when we have shot reverse shot in Legally Blonde that you are seeing the back of the other person's head. It becomes way off angle Silence of the Lambs. And honestly, it plays like the worst version of a multicam sitcom to me. And I cannot stand it. Now, to be fair, when we do get the camera lingering longer on Reese Witherspoon's face and she really gets to go through some emotions because of how she felt about whatever just happened in the scene that does make it a little more impactful but oh my god I don't think Jennifer Coolidge and Reese Witherspoon ever share a scene together until the end of the movie because they are all shot reverse shot and and when they encounter each other when she pops down with her nails all that stuff Zach this drove me crazy This came off as a sitcom so hard to me that it was almost painful at certain points. Did you pick up on this, or are you against me with this? (laughs) No, I think you had. I think you hit the nail on the head. I agree. Um, That all seemed pretty transparent to me, and it was like I said. There's a lot of in that second film that feels like it was just kind of like put together after the fact. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So. On that same vein, I just want to talk a little bit about the director of the first movie, where I really had the problem with this, uh, Robert Luketic. So this is his feature film debut, which I think we can agree, all-star, knock-it-out-of-the-park feature film debut. We both really like this movie. Two words, magnum opus. He works next on something called, as a director, Win a Date with Tad Hamilton. <gasps> I have no oh, fucking idea what that is. Never heard, I've never, never heard, heard of that. You've never heard of Win a Date with Tad Hamilton? I, I literally read the entire plot synopsis Rob, and Rob, went, I Rob, don't think Rob, I've ever Rob, heard about this. Rob, Rob, calm your butt down. Um, <laughs> you're telling me you've never heard of Win a Date with Tad Hamilton no. starring Topher Grace and Josh Duhamel? No, I, I had in to. A, in a blonde cardboard up. cutout? I had to look this up. I so Rob, had to won, look this up. Rob, 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 who won the date with Tad Hamilton? I don't know. 
it it left my mind the moment I read it. <laughs> All right, folks. The thing I remember if, is that it was a love triangle we're... movie. Yes, with with Topher Grace and Josh Duhamel over Topher like a Grace. Girl who works at Costco. I don't. I've never liked Topher Grace's love interest. I, I, I you mean Eric Foreman. I, yeah, yeah, exactly. He Eddie, that's, Eddie Brock. I that's why I never the guy that Spider Man Three Eddie Brock. So you gotta say yeah, that that yes. it's Spider Man Three. The guy Eddie Brock. that just, the guy that Jessica Chastain kisses in Interstellar. Topher Grace's best performance is as the creepy dude with a drone that wants to watch his neighbors undress in Under the Silver Lake. Because that's the only moment I've ever been like, yeah, this is how I view Topher Grace as a creepy, small, spindly man. <laughs> He's also, isn't Brad Pitt teaching Topher Grace how to play poker at the beginning of Ocean's Eleven? Isn't that his other film performance that I remember? I don't know why I'm asking you if I remember that. <laughs> yeah, I have no memory. I, I, no one's ever told me this either way. So, oh, you were uh, probably distracted it, because Brad Pitt had... 16,000 pieces of food in his mouth at that moment. That's fair. Um, Zach, honestly, you you have to realize that when I looked into this director's filmography and I saw the romantic comedy Win a Date with Tad Hamilton that I have never heard of, I was expecting this exact response from you. <laughs> yep. That you were yep. going to have everything to say about it. Rob knows me too well. Okay, so maybe... Now I've rekindled something in Zach that he will put that on the spreadsheet for years to months to weeks to days to come. That might be our next week topic. But his third movie is Monster-in-Law. And I went, whoa, do you mean— With, with, with Jane Fonda? Yes, I, but here's the thing. When I read this, I said— Law? I said, is Wikipedia wrong? And IMDb, are they wrong? Isn't this— the McG movie, but no, that's This Means War, which for some reason I think are the same exact movie. <laughs> but now, Zach, here's where we take a left turn into Satan's asshole. After these three movies that wholly revolve around some type of romance's impetus and growth of a character... He directs 21, the Jim Sturgis, Kevin Spacey poker movie. I didn't see that. I saw that in theaters with my mother. Did you? Did you really? Neither of us liked it. You know why I saw that movie? MGMT's Time to Pretend is the trailer song and the song that plays over the opening credits. That's why I saw that movie. That movie sucks. That movie's so bad it might be painful. We're we're we're, just, we're just going now. We're we're in it now. After Twenty One, he directs The Ugly Truth, which nobody's ever seen, but they remember that poster. Remember, Catherine Heigl had the heart over her heart, but Gerard Butler had the heart over his penis. Then he directs Killers. I don't know what that is. Katherine Heigl's in it too, though. And then, Paranoia, the Taylor Lautner vehicle post-Twilight, where he is an espionage-based spy between, get this, Gary Oldman 
and Harrison Ford. I think I might have seen this movie and successfully blocked it out of my memory because of traumatic experience. And then he directs something called The Wedding Year. Never heard of this. And since 2015, Robert Luketic has been slated to direct the all-female version of The Expendables called, get this, The Expendables. I don't. I don't think there's any. I don't think there's any more to say. Zach, I, I might be comfortable waiting till the four-year anniversary to answer our questions for this episode, because that might have been the biggest revelation anybody's ever heard in film history. Thoughts? <laughs> I think Zach is dead. Zach might legitimately be dead from the information I've given him. <gasps> Did I do it? Can Ben and I finally run this podcast? <laughs> I hear you breathing. You have to say something. Now this is just a bit, right? <laughs> oh, God. I can't. I, now that I said that, you're going to do this for the next six minutes. <laughs> you can't have fallen asleep. That was the most exciting information you've ever gained. Either you've fallen asleep or you have unhooked your headphones from your phone to put them in your TV to watch Paranoia. (laughs) Jesus Christ, I'm running out of jokes to try and make you break your silence. (laughs) It legitimately does sound you're asleep. Did you have a medical emergency? Should I be calling? This has to be a bit, right? (laughs) Yo. Can I please, before we kick off our questions, if Zach is still alive after this, tell a story that I found from Amanda Brown, the actual writer of the novel and the screenplay that this is based off of, one of the credit writers of the screenplay, about her time in law school. Can I please do that? And then we'll get to our questions because clearly Zach might die of old age while we're doing this. <laughs> indeed, Rob, indeed. So uh, this movie and corresponding book are based on Amanda's Brown, Amanda Brown's own experiences at Stanford Law School. And in an interview she gave with SF Gate, which I found to be San Francisco Gate, the Bay Area News articles, she was promoting one of her other books in 2003 after Legally Blonde, Red, White, and Blue came out. And she talked about the inspiration for this whole story being based off of her clashing with others at Stanford Law School. And she said this, and I quote, it's a fairly long quote, but I think it's really worth reading because it is fucking hilarious. Start quote. I was in my first week of law school in 1993, and I saw this flyer for the women of Stanford Law. So I was like, I'll go and meet some nice girls, whatever. I went to the meeting, and these were not women. These were really angry people. The woman who was leading it spent three years at Stanford trying to change the name Semester to Ovister. I started laughing, and I realized everyone in the room took it very seriously. So I didn't make any friends there. 
And it goes on, which I don't have the exact quotes for, but it goes on in this article to explain that because this fucking nearly blacklisted Amanda Brown from her peers at Stanford really? Law School, that she just started to sit at coffee shops and write about what she saw and created the book and screenplay that we know today. But, oh my God, can we please talk about Semester versus Ovister? Is please do, this not the greatest sketch comedy pitch in history? <laughs> because if this woman was real, and of course we're giving credit to Amanda Brown from reading, you know, stating this in this article, which I, I don't give a lot of discredit to, this person she met, said that she didn't like the name Semester and wanted the name Ovester. The Sem in Semester has nothing to do with semen. It has no gender connotation. The Sem, the S-E-M in Semester, comes from semi-annually. And of course, if you want to at me, that's been argued over the years of what that's become and things like that. But there is such a misguided use of words and English language to say we shouldn't have S-E-M as a prefix because it relates to semen, and we should replace it with O-V as a prefix for ovum. I, th this legitimately, she read, I read in this article, a Mr. Show sketch, basically. What are your thoughts on Semester versus Ovister? Because honestly, after everything I've said, I kind of want to go to a college. Something I've said to you before, Zach, I think I would really like to be an administrator in a math department one day. I think I would really like that. My first pitch ever might now be, let's call them Ovister. <laughs> so what you're saying, Rob, is that you want to be a part of the problem, not the solution. Uh, I, okay. Good point. Here's the thing. If we change the name of something without changing the definition, is it a problem? Yes, but not in so many words. Isn't it just becoming educating the people that we've changed the name and not actually changing the issue at hand? This is the thing that really interests me about this as we talk about this type of culture of saying it can't be semester, it needs to be – or. Maybe this is the thing. I've just read this. I, my first response was, please let me talk to Amanda Brown one day. Because honestly, this whole story changes if this woman that she met might have pronounced it semester. That's a possibility, right? That she didn't want semen, semester in her schooling. She wanted ovum, ovester, right? And that's not well, where I, think, I see I, I this. I think you're reading into it too much. I'm reading into it the right woke amount to have a full argument. Don't at me, Zach. <laughs> don't at me. I don't think if I was the head of a math department, I could ever, ever make the change from semester to Ovester. But I could put it forward. <laughs> I could be L. Woods putting that pink paper in the hopper box. And that might be my greatest goal since watching this movie. Because, Zach, can't we agree at the end of this, ain't this the best shit we watched? Thank you so much, Zach, for making me watch <laughs> these movies. Like I said at the start, I really want to harp. This was a cultural blind spot for me. And you have filled that in with your Rob, infinite we, wisdom. Rob, 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 can we please have a uh, 
inferiority complex cover of Atlas. Thank you for the music, but instead of music, it's movies. Thank you for the movies for giving them to me. See, that's tough. Jeremy and I have a really important rule about not covering songs that don't need it. And as we've talked about before, ABBA songs don't need covers as much as you love the 18, Zach. Uh, Unless we get the 18 to cover it. Thank you for you will probably thank you for the cinemodities for giving <laughs> it to me. Uh, just to round out the trifecta of problems we have, uh, season two of True Detective is better than season one. With that being said, Zach, that is a lie. Can we that talk a... about our questions? And of course, that is a lie, folks. Uh, much Lies. better. Much better. Um, season three doesn't exist. Season three is the literal equivalent of a cartoon comic you would get on Bubblegum because it's such abject trash. <laughs> season one is fairly good, but useless. Season two is a masterpiece. Uh, season two is Rachel McAdams having a baby. I'm picking the scabs now. Promising Young Woman might be the worst thing I've seen in the last few years. Whoa. Whoa, whoa. Don't whoa me. I said this earlier. You can't whoa me. I said this earlier. You can't whoa me. I said... I cannot abide by that. Nearly, nearly abject trash, promising young woman. That, nearly. that is a lie. Nearly. That is a lie. Garbage. That is a lie, Rob. Don't, don't make me chain you up, Rob. I will chain <laughs> you up in my nurse's costume with clown hair. Zach, as we talked about for recording, they... Uh, they Dug up all the sidewalk in front of my apartment. I'm gonna put you in that ditch. How about that? <laughs> I'm going to incinerate your body, and I'm gonna send a text message to Alfred Molina. Someone's gonna that? call my neighbor and say, "Why is there a person writhing around a ditch in front of your apartment?" And my neighbor's gonna go, "No, no, no, that's the one next door." <laughs> so, with all that right, being said. Which one day all, right. all these things we will discuss in more detail. Promising yes. young woman. Yes. Uh, I God, I, can, I cannot watch True Detective season one again. Uh, can we get to our questions at hand? And of course, yes, I'm we trying. have I'm to trying, be. Rob, I'm trying. I'm gonna do my lead up. We have to talk about them separately. We have to, right? We cannot combine these. Which is something we've only done, I think, once in Cinemati's history. So we have to be answering our four questions for today. We only combine them on the snacks. We only combine them oh. on the snacks. Snack of snacks? Sure. I, I kind of like the way you say that. <laughs> said that. I might like clip that for, for later use. Because that was a pretty cute way for you to say that, Zach. And you do uh, 0% cute things a decade. So... That was rough. Um, That was harsh. I'm sorry. That was harsh. I'm sorry. So, (laughs) Cinemodities. Let's start with that. Legally Blonde, Legally Blonde 2. I want to do Cinemodities first. What do you think? Okay. Uh, Cinemodity status, I'm going to say no for Legally Blonde, but yes for Legally Blonde 2. Late night status, I'm going to say the same. I didn't preface that yet. What? I didn't preface. I said Cinemodities. I didn't preface late night yet. What are you jumping the gun for? I'm sorry, so I'm going to say no to part one, part two, yes. You ate for like 30 minutes on this recording. Don't don't come at me. <laughs> I did. I did. I was hungry. And it's like I wanted to do it this way because I agree. No for Cinemodities wow. for the first one. Yes for the second one. Because of everything we said, the first one is... I, I don't even want to pull up precedent of being too good. It can't be a Cinemodity. 
I want to pull up precedent of it's just a real movie that is good. Legally Blonde 2, oh, fucking fever dream, like we talked about. Total cinemodity. It's so, nonsense. It, it's utter nonsense. Gay dog, major plot point. Gay dog, major plot point. Please, once again, somebody clip me and put this somewhere. Gay dog, major plot point. Plot point. <laughs> so now for Late Night, Zach, Legally Blonde 1 and 2, what do you think? Uh, I'm going to say... Oh God! I don't know if I want to rec- like I said. Like, I don't like it. Part one is not a late night movie. I think it's like an anytime movie. So I'm gonna say no to part one. Part two, like, I really don't think there's anything to recommend about about part two. I think part two is a fundamental misunderstanding of what makes part one so good. So I'm gonna say no to both. Well, fuck! You've ruined my entire plan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Rob. Because my sorry. my answer to late night for Legally Blonde number one is yes. I I think this is such a good, successful thematic and comedical movie that this is exactly what I want to show to people to have some of these discussions. Don't you want maybe to counterpoint you, Zach, which we haven't done in a long time in in these questions? Don't you want to talk about the you know, almost physically deformed moment with other people in a late-night viewing setting? Don't you want to talk about the, Chuck is a friend, you bitch! Don't you want to talk about those things? Uh, but my problem is I think so much of this, of the first film, has been absorbed through people, through cultural osmosis, they're not going to, like, analyze it. On the level that you and I are. I think that I am the perfect counterexample to what you just said, in the sense that I said at the start of this discussion... That I think I've known about this movie enti- my entire life, even though that's not possible, and I still found it this entertaining. So I know, but I think a lot of people have. I think you experienced this movie for the first time, like in your own little Rob way of doing it. I think most people discovered this movie like when they were twelve years old on ABC Family on a Saturday when afternoon. When you say things like that, Zach, you feel that I you make me feel that I need to implement like the cinemata statistics. Because I don't know. I, I fundamentally don't know if you're accurate or not. I'm not saying I'm more accurate or you're more accurate. I fundamentally don't know. And that might be something that needs to go in the spreadsheet. But I'm saying yes to late night for the first one. I'm saying no to late night for the second one because it is a fever dream. And I think that is a case where you show it to somebody and they lose their minds and say, why the hell did I spend the night with you, Rob? That type of thing. With that being said, if there's nothing else you want to get to with our two questions, let's get into snacks. I have to say, I don't have a lot of snacks. I absolutely fell in the trap of this movie, these movies, really watching them, gaining every moment of them from them. But I do have a few. And I think one of my first one comes from that first breakup scene when Elle Woods is freaking out and Warner's response is to say she had some bad salad. Can we just have a menu item called bad salad? And it's there to be subterfuge for a breakup? I No, I kind of just like a, a menu item called bad salad. Like, like, what if we had, I don't know, the, this was like the week-old lettuce or the, the week-old baby Wilty, spinach. Wilty lettuce? 
Yeah, like it's you know you. I'm sure everybody's seen it. It's that lettuce that stays in the fridge too long. It starts to get a uh, darker and porous and and degrades, and it's like easier to rip up. I just like I'm, I'm, my literal note is just the words "bad salad" and then an exclamation mark. <laughs> I kind of like bad salad. I you know in- Rob, if you can have okay, Rob, if you can have bad salad, may I have another item? That's uh, very low-hanging fruit. Okay, okay. Can I please have the Jennifer Coolidge hot dog? Oh, yes. That is delivered to yes. you by a UPS Of course, man. of course, because I knew you had to have that when you texted me before I had seen either of these movies. Um, just now that we're on that topic, just for full disclosure, Zach very clearly told me we would record on 6.15 and then comes at me with a 614 call me when you're ready. And I said, Zach, no. <laughs> what you're saying is that I was one minute ahead. You were one day ahead. No, Rob. Minute sounds too much like longitude. Um, but but you texted me. I was like, I was like, so to be completely fair, I said, oh, no, Zach, like, no. Like, no, we shouldn't have this agreement. Because to be fair also, I think. Um, please, and please be honest about this, Zach. In the three plus years we've been doing Cinematis, this was the first time we fucked up our schedule, right? Definitely. Yeah. Never happened before. Never will yeah, happen. Yeah. And, and I, so I was very upset about it. And I texted Zach, I'm sad boy right now. And he texted me a gif of Jennifer Coolidge saying, it makes me want a hot dog real bad. We're making nearly $50 a month on Patreon, and this is how we're running shit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. I hope people love it. I hope people love it. But Jennifer Coolidge's hot dog delivered by a UPS man, Zach. You own that snack. Whatever you want to do with it, you can do with it because I got to give you that. Uh, But I I totally blame you. Uh, I would not have written 615 if you told me 614. I would never have let that happen. No, I have to give you some credit, Zach. I might have fucked up, and I like that we can get past this in a wholesome manner and talk about hot dogs. (laughs) What truly matters when it comes to this Amadi's podcast. (laughs) So I have a snack that I don't remember. Uh, I wrote down one word in all caps, and I don't really remember where it came from, so whenever this happens, I usually ask you... (laughs) Oh god, maybe I should have written that down. <laughs> no, it is it is one word. Oh, oh, I think it had something to do with bread. I just wrote down in all caps the word sustenance. I'm pretty <laughs> sure when when Reese Witherspoon shows up to the Warner and Selma Blair study group, she's like, "Hey, can I join your scu- oh, study group? Yeah. I brought sustenance." And she says sustenance like a God, like, she's saying it as the beat of a Tupac song. She says something like, I came to visit your study group, study you guys, and I brought sustenance! And it's like the drop in a rap song, and when she says it, she pulls out a piece of bread. Hi, everybody. Elle, what are you doing here? I've come to join your study group. And look, I brought sustenance. Who's first? Mm -mm, Mm-mm, mm-mm, our group is full. And I'm kind of like, yo! Let me taste that bread. <laughs> so what do you think about, I guess, I'm kind of filling in my gaps in my memory. Um, instead of bread on the tables, 
You know, like you go to an Italian restaurant, you get the bread at the start with maybe some olive oil, whatever. We don't provide bread. We provide sustenance. What do you think? Do we have to yell it like that? Oh, everybody. 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 The hostess, the hosts, the walk-around characters, the wait staff, the customers. If we hear a customer saying at least we have bread because our food's taken so long because, okay, customer, ignore the fact that we have to take at least 600 pictures with the evil camera to get you your goddamn food for your table, they have to call it sustenance. I'm very angry at our customers. Very angry. Very angry. Sustenance! Uh, I made bread recently. It was really good. Just want to say that. I'm pretty good at making bread. French. Ooh. I have two other snacks. One, I think is very important for the concept of the restaurant. If we have anybody, for whatever reason, for whatever misinformation or non-information they've been given about our restaurant, and they want to apply for a job, they need to give us scented resumes. <laughs> Zach's sold. That's a sold. Zach has no thoughts. He's sold. Scented resumes. I'm not saying what scent. Maybe. Here's the thing. We let our applications be creative with their scents. Green apple. Green apple. Oh, I love a green apple. I love a Granny Smith scent. But I'm talking, See? like, if somebody comes in here... And, you know, they give us, we get a shitload, because I, I think both of us can agree, we get billions of applications a day. It is the most desired to place to work in, I can't say this with straight face, in Times Square, New York. Yes. TGIF turned you down? Come to the Cinemodities restaurant where you're guaranteed death after a month. I would love to just smell every scent from people's resumes, and I also think that I'm pitching this snack for the fact that I think we've said before, maybe it was a long time ago, but I think we've established this, we're the people reading these resumes, so we would have to do a a grab-the-paper-with-both-hands-click-click-against-the-table and smell all of these things combined. Wouldn't that be great, Zach? It sounds icky, but I'm aboard. Okay, and my last snack, my only one from Legally Blonde 2. I don't think it goes without saying, because of what we said earlier, a dish of keys. Just a, <laughs> bun- just a bunch of loose keys. You know, you, you chew them, you swallow them, you do whatever you want. Just a, just a bunch of loose keys. Wait, what's wrong with that? You see what happens. <laughs> Zach, I love the time frame of prior to your hiatus and post your hiatus when you've become much more comfortable with cursing at me. (laughs) Like, I feel like you bleeped yourself sometimes prior to your hiatus, and now you're just like, fuck them, bitches. (laughs) Okay, Zach, those are my only four snacks. Did you have any more for the restaurant? Just the hot dog. Just the hot dog. That's what it's called. Just just the hot dog. Just the hot dog. There's like, like everything else is kind of like just like, like again Jennifer Coolidge man it's gotta be obnoxious. Just the hot dog, just the hot dog. Zach, I can't get that mad about you because you are a fifty percent owner in the restaurant until legal problems arise, and then you are forty nine percent. So I guess we should say next week we got a big week next week for Cinemodities. 
Because oh, yeah. we're covering the dumbest movie in existence. Actually, it might be. I think I might Jurassic Park. Th- I might rate Jurassic Park three higher than every other Jurassic Park movie. We're talking about dinosaurs again. I think this is going to be a fun one. That for the first time in Cinemati's history, Rob might not even watch the movie. Because Whoa. fuck dinosaurs. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Of course I want to watch it, but tune in <laughs> next week, everybody, for Rob's hot new takes on dinosaurs. Zach, do you have any final thoughts on Legally Blonde? On how much you don't want to be involved with next week's episode or anything else regarding that? <laughs> All I'm going to say is Alan. Oh, I'm going to say because <laughs> that's what they actually sound like. Um, so. Indeed. If you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, comments on anything related to Cinemodities, please, of course, head over to Cinemodities, uh, sorry, reddit.cinema, shit, <laughs> fuck, nobody, nobody posts on there, I, except me, I will put the show, the link in the show notes, and please, if you like what you hear, head on over to the Cinemodities Patreon, which is, I know, patreon.com slash cinemodities, to not only support the podcast, but earn extra content about a lot of different things that we talk about on the main show. Other than that, if you have a problem with dinosaurs, Constantine, legally blondes, I guess, please feel free to hit us up at cinemodities at gmail.com, which has also become the bastion of truth that only Rob moderates. Zach, with that being said, I think the only way to end this episode, which I think you will agree with, let's take the opening credits song from the first Legally Blonde movie, which is Perfect Day by Hoku, in reverse. I have to ask, as I say this, one, do you disagree? And two, do you listen to this song every day of your life while you brush your hair? I do. I don't listen to it every day, Rob. But I goddamn love this song. You, you do agree with me though, that when I started Legally Blonde one and I listened to the opening credits music, I was like, "Wow, this might be why Zach picked this movie." <laughs> it's a perfect day. Yes, Rob. It is it is bliss. I hope everybody enjoys Zach's little singing clip right there to the actual mm-hmm. clip of the movie. Exactly. It's a uh, it, it, it might be a perfect day. day. It might be a perfect day. It's not going to be as perfect as Dinosaurs 3, whatever the hell we're watching is called. But I think we did it. <laughs> Indeed, probably did.